Okay, it's just coming up to two o'clock and I think everybody looks like they're back, so we'll resume. I think we were left with, did you want to respond, Mr Miles, um, for lunch? Uh, yes, thank you. Um, so to respond to Mr Belton's point, um, the, the simple point I want to make is that um, ED30, uh, which is the Council's response to AA6 and AA7. Uh, on the second page of that, in, in the, the same column and row I indicated before, um, which takes the outline, pre-outline application process of September 21 to September 22, which is taken from the... Um, if you follow that, that column down, uh, which is the second column from the right, with the pre-outline application process, September 21, September 22, follow that down right the way to the end, you get to the first completion of, of homes in September 25. Uh, and as that matches the, um, the process set out in, in ED 48, that includes the, the six-month uh, marketing to house builders um, line which Mr. Belton referred to. The rightmost column is um, of, of, yes, the rightmost column of ED30 um, moves the, the, that process back by, by 21, or forward depending on how you look at it, um, by 21 months so that the pre-outline application process starts in January 2020 when the Regulation 18 DPD is published. Uh, proceeding for the same amount of time to January 22. And again, if you follow that right the way down to the end, the, the, the date for the completion of first homes is, is again the same amount of time, same 21-month difference from that, that column on the left. It, it's matching that process. It includes the, the six-month um, marketing to house builders element of the timetable, which Mr Belton referred to. Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure that entirely answers your question, but I think we'll have to move on. Yeah, I, I don't need to it. I think you've latched onto it. That's a helpful summary of what the table says. What it doesn't say is why the councillors are, are, are wedded to the column on the far left, which is the accelerated column, which is my point. I, I think they should be looking at the columns to the right of their trajectory rather than the one to the left. Thank you. Are there any other comments anybody wants to make on this particular point before we move on to another Topic, Mr. Thompson. Uh, Vincent Thompson, uh, Stop Eastern Park. Uh, Ma'am, I would just like to say <coughs> that after that extremely lengthy monologue from Mr. Warren this morning, which can, has now consumed a debate or led to a debate that's consumed an hour of our precious time, there are two conclusions I come to. One is that Mr. Warren is seeking to use an inherent flaw in the, t in the plan in terms of the trajectory to yet further improve the commercial position of land securities at the expense of the local community. And therefore, as a representative of the local community, I have to say categorically that that is unacceptable. The second point I would make is that by stringing it out in the way that he has, it is a point that assumes that SP6 will be allocated. 
we are primarily here to debate whether SP6 should be allocated. That debate is secondary, but our precious time is being consumed enormously by Mr. Warren, to my mind, to avoid us getting on to the fundamentals. Now, why Don't worry, we'll ensure that you have opportunity to say all you want to I say. I thought land securities were saying that they were only available till 4 o'clock yesterday. Transport consultants are only available till four o'clock. Good. Well, that's helpful to know. Now, in the question of this next <coughs> debate of DPD versus SPD, might I please put a question to the Council, which is why they see fit to put forward a plan like this with these major developments without using the development corporation, which, as I understand it, is the normal way for the delivery of a major project like this. This isn't an opportunity to ask questions of the council. If that's a statement that, you know, you're concerned that that hasn't happened, then that's... Then let me make it as a statement. Okay. Quite understood. As a statement, it is a major concern to me that this is not being pursued under a development corporation, but under a DPD, let alone the SBD. Thank you. Thank you. And on that point, Mr... Uh, just to refer you to SP5. Uh, the final paragraph on page 39, where we talk about the delivery models. Um, I'll, I'll read the paragraph. Actually, no, I won't. I'll, I will refer you to it. it and we basically do not rule out any particular delivery model. And to say, uh, as, as, as you'll be aware, the, the DPD or SPD point is, is um, a different point to, to the delivery model. I think we did, there was a talk yesterday, wasn't there, about um, a development corporation when we were talking about was it, um, West of Braintree, I think, wasn't it? That was discussed. There was. Um, the North Essex Garden Communities Company... Um, they are. They, they cover the, the Braintree side of the site. They cover the, north, the three North Essex authorities, but they do not cover Uttlesford. Um, they are uh, considering a, a locally led development corporation. So maybe that's a discussion for the council as well with local residents as to the way to. Uh, that's part of a consultation process. Uh, but I think it goes to the great the, the fundamentals of the plan and the position of the local community under a development corporation where they are an equity participant in the structure is so enormously stronger than it would be under what is proposed in this. I rest my case. Thank you. Mr Dodsley. Thank you. Um, just coming back on a couple of uh, the points that were made just before we went to lunch, <clears throat> I find that I'm not in agreement with uh, UDC on many things, but one thing I can categorically say I am in agreement with on is their view around um, the importance of the DPD process um, in terms of the fact that as a local resident and representing the local residents, um, 
the fact that a DPD will have further examination and a further hearing and the opportunity to um, consult extensively with uh, local community is really important. There's the potential for um, Eastern Park to potentially commit the district to 50 years of development potentially um, and I think that that's worth spending time on and consulting with the local community. Uh, secondly, um, um, I was really um, interested to hear from Mr Warren that uh, LANSEC are committed to community engagement and I have to say we've had some meetings with LANSEC and they've always been very civil um, and um, very, um, very helpful. Um, however, um, you can only judge something on its track record um, and the one opportunity for community engagement that LANSEC um, had with Little Eastern was to put on a, um, a display of their proposals and unfortunately that was less than satisfactory. Um, I'm not sure whether they really understood what the village of Little Eastern looked like, how many properties were in it, but they gave us less than one week's notice of the exhibition and despite promising to deliver leaflets to all the properties in the village, actually only managed to deliver leaflets publicising it to less than 10% of the villages, uh, the villagers in the village. Obviously, that was very disappointing, um, and uh, that's the only judgment I can make on their community engagement so far. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure they're listening and taking note of, uh, of those points. Mr. Arthur. Let's try that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, Mom. I just want to uh, go back to the question and the wording of the question, if I if I may, please. Um, we support the council in terms of the view that the DPD option is the right way forward. Um, we think that is in inherently important, notwithstanding our overarching objection to um, the principle of the garden community as put forward in uh, SP6. Um, if that is to go ahead, then we think having a DPD, um, perhaps in the form of a, an area action plan, as has been done elsewhere, would be an effective mechanism to guide and shape how that development would take place moving forward. Um, clearly through that process there, there is the opportunity for formal further community consultation. That is of the utmost importance to Great Don Motown Council. Um, so we agree with that. We don't think the SPD route is, is appropriate. We think having the, the wording of a DPD within the policy as is set out is, is, is helpful as well to reinforce that, that point. Um, one of the issues that, that perhaps um, is also relevant here is, is, is in relation to um, the wording of the question and, and also delivery rates and how that's anticipated to come forward from Eastern Park. Um, clearly the rates within the trajectory that have been set out and have been revised again um, don't necessarily consider Uttlesford's historic delivery rate. Um, over the period from 2011 to 2017. Um, the Council's housing requirement has only been met once out of those six years, um, and, and that was in the context of a lower 
annual requirement than what is proposed in this plan, um, with an obvious significant stepped increase um, from 568 dwellings per annum to 704 dwellings per annum further on in the plan period, um, particularly alongside when um, the bulk of development is to start to come forward, uh, 300 units per annum from, from Eastern, development potentially coming forward from west of Braintree at a similar time frame, as well as the other large developments on the edge of Great Dunmo. It's in the context of a lot of new dwellings coming forward within a similar time period. Now, there's obvious issues there in terms of how much or, or, or the rate of, of, of development that the market can put forward uh, at one time in, in one relatively um, small area. So I think that's something that needs to be considered in terms of the trajectory moving forward as well. Um, and in terms of how, how that links back to those historic delivery rates, that needs to be considered, I think, by, by the council a bit further. Um, in terms of the, the DPD, again, for, for Eastern Park, in terms of what the, the council set out in its um, hearing statement, in terms of the timetable that's been set out there for the production of that, that document, um, the council have acknowledged that, that delivery of that document within a two-year period is, is, is a challenging timescale. Um, and it's one that, that we don't agree is necessarily realistic. Um, the Northwest Cambridge AOP that's been referenced by the council within their statement commenced in 2005 and was adopted in late 2009, four years rather than the three years suggested. Now, from my own experience of, of producing AAPs, um, I was involved in the production of the Barwell and Earl Shilton Area Action Plan in, in Leicestershire. Um, they were two SUEs, 4,000 dwellings, considerably less than what we're talking about here that's proposed as part of this garden community. Um, that, that, that took four years to produce with, with all the best efforts from all parties, simply because the evidence required, the need to consult and engage and get people on board and, and be involved in that policy process. Um, and, and then the timeframes for examination. You know, two years is, is, is a very optimistic uh, period of time for, for, the, for the delivery of that document. And clearly, if there is slippages within that program, you know, unintentional slippages that could occur, that is going to have a delay and knock-on in terms of when an application could come forward and in terms of the delivery of units, particularly in, in what we're looking at now, 1,625. The Council's now suggesting within this plan period. And that's important for your consideration of whether this plan is sound, because clearly there could be a need to allocate other sites, for example, in the absence of that shortfall, um, or, you know, to, to, to boost those numbers that potentially could be lost off the back of the plan period. So clearly, often the policy you know, can, be, can be expressed as a minimum. I, I sort of noted your point earlier, what you're saying about an indicative figure, and that's, that's all well and good, but there's got to be some element of realism in terms of what can come forward and what can be delivered in order to actually give you the confidence and the comfort that, that the numbers can be delivered within this plan period. So I think perhaps that just needs a, a bit of thought in terms of how that um, is going to work out. Um, we, we think very much if a planning application does come forward, it needs to be informed and shaped as a result of that DPD process. Um, we don't agree with, with what the council is suggesting, that that, that can be twin-tracked. Um, 
again, as, as Lansac indicated earlier on, that they wouldn't necessarily wish to, to, to twin track it because there's a degree of uncertainty for, for them as well involved in that. Um, if there is going to be a DPD, which we think they should, that needs to go through the process. Uh, it needs to have community engagement. Um, and, and that can very much be alongside pre-application discussions, for example, wider engagement with the community, which I'm sure the promoters will, will look to do. But the reality of actually twin-tracking that process, it, it's a little presumptuous. And actually, it's meant to be the plan-led system. That's what the MPPF advocates. That's why we're all here as part of the plan-led system. So actually, the reality is that needs to happen first. The DPD needs to be in place first before an application can come forward. We heard... Um, in, in the previous sessions about um, the timescales set out for the delivery of these large-scale applications. You'll know from your own experience, lead-in times on, on those big schemes. So, you know, to try and squeeze it all in within a two-year period, twin track as well, in our view, it's a little bit ambitious. Um, and, and clearly, even if that, that process slipped by a couple of years, that is going to have a knock-on and impact, as my, my earlier points, about delivery. Um, so, so that is something that, that we think needs to be to be considered um, very carefully through this this process um, as part of the the ongoing discussions that we're having around that thank you are there any, any other additional points obviously some of that's been said before we need to be careful we don't go over, keep going over the same ground because we've not got yes and we've got a lot to cover under question one so we will get on to transport and we need to probably get on to that fairly shortly so that um, yeah, still on question one then um, around the capability of delivering 10,000 homes. Um, there are a number of constraints that UDC have failed to acknowledge in the local plan that impact on whether the site is capable of delivering 10,000 homes. I draw your attention to the UDC Matter 8 hearing statement, section 1.2b, because that lists some of the constraints from the evidence base. Sorry, matter which, sorry? Uh, your matter 8, um, the UDC oh. hearing statement, matter 8, section 1.2b. Uh, it lists some of the key constraints from the evidence base on the site. The section uh, details a constraint which states that there is potential for part of the site, sorry, I said part of the site, to accommodate development. And this statement comes from the uh, Chris Blanford Landscape and Visual Appraisal section, 6.4.1, page 18, in the evidence base. Suitability of the site for development. Now, obviously, um, whether the whole site or just part of the site um, is able to accommodate development is pretty critical in the deliverability of 10,000 homes. So it would be helpful um, if the officers, or I, I think we have a representative from Blandford here, um, could explain which part of the site is able to accommodate development and which part of the site, according to the evidence base, cannot accommodate development. And in light of this point, how has this constraint been factored into the developable area of the site and the capability to deliver 10,000 homes? Uh, I just have one other point on question one. Um, policy SP6, paragraph 16, page 46, states a policy to protect the separate identity of Little Eastern as a community 
close to but separate from Eastern Park. Yeah, that's paragraph 16, page 46, SP6. There's no constraint detailed in either the hearing statement or anywhere else in the evidence base that the proposed development site parameters will divide the Little Eastern Village community and cut off more than 20 Little Eastern properties from each other and from the rest of the village. And Appendix 1 of the Little Eastern Hearing Statement shows the properties affected. This is clearly a constraint of the site. Uh, it brings into um, play the question of coalescence and to meet that policy statement that Little Eastern um, is a community close to but separate from Eastern Park, the plan as currently configured does not recognise the total coalescence between the new development and Little Eastern and there's no realistic mitigation measures detailed in the plan. So I'd ask again to be, for it to be considered how has compliance with this policy been factored into the developable area of the site and the capacity to deliver 10,000 homes. There's more than 20 homes from Little Eastern Village that will be surrounded by new development. So my assumption from that is that the site is constrained and doesn't have the ability to deliver 10,000 homes. Thank you, Mr. Dosley. The council have the um, landscape um, architect here. Um, what I'm conscious of is time in terms of highways. Can we come back to the landscape appraisal issue um, potentially? Because do, do you have to go at a certain time today? No. <laughs> I'm just conscious that. Um, no, no, I do as well. <laughs> um, but would it take. Uh, have you got a lot to say in terms of. I'm conscious that sometimes you say something and then somebody says something and before we know another hour has gone and um, um, obviously there's a landscape question right. to come up following this. Um, I think the very brief point, which is probably not necessarily for me to answer, is that it's not the local plan policy doesn't show a developable area. It shows a broad location within which development will be located. And as part of that, we would expect landscape mitigation and I imagine heritage mitigation as well, my colleague here, um, within that site. And the site is covering a large area. Um, and you are right, we do identify that part of the site would be appropriate for development. And as ongoing investigations, presumably by the promoter, um, would identify particular areas where that doesn't want to take place with green space, with mitigation allowing for it. We haven't based our work on a master plan that is completely separate from what is being put forward in the local plan as an, a broad location for development within it. Okay. Thank you. And I think it's anticipated that that work would take place further down the line at the DPD stage. That's what the council's yeah, anticipation this is. Yeah, this is proportionate for this, this where we're stage of moment. work um, and that's based on guidelines in, in PPF and our industry guidelines. It's, it's a proportionate scale of um, appraisal at this stage. Thank you. Okay. Ed, very briefly to add that the, the, the appropriate mitigation is, is identified in, in the policy and, and would be further worked on in, in the development plan document. 
Thank you. I don't know whether that answers your question. We've Not got really, a, We've no. got a question further down the agenda, which yeah. we'll get to in terms of landscape. Yeah, it was a very straightforward question. If we're saying part of the site can accommodate development, which part is it? And which part cannot? I'm not asking them to define mitigation measures. I'm not asking them to define um, policy. If you're saying part of the site can, can accommodate development, you must know which part of the site, surely. It's a straightforward question. We'll come back to that under question three. Okay. So we'll try and deal now with um, matters of um, transport and the um, traffic modelling, etc. We've got the document as well that was submitted, the um, Statement of Common Ground. Um, had it a moment ago. Submitted this morning. Um, and I think some copies have been made of that and hopefully people have had a chance to, have had a chance to have a quick look at it if it's something that <coughs> they're particularly interested in. So we'll try and deal with the transport matters now and then um, while we've got people here who are able to deal with that um, and then move on to other matters. Is there anybody in particular wanting to speak on highway matters? Ms Foster. Thank you. There was an introductory comment made by the council's barrister about the level of certainty you need to make your judgments on this plan. And the standard that was suggested to you is reasonable prospects of delivery. Of course, what is essential is that that be an evidence-based judgment of reasonable prospects. And our objection to the allocation is that the evidence base does not lead to that standard of judgment being met. And it's tragic, because as I alluded to, I sat in this examination with Roy Foster when he looked at their plan in 2014. And it is very helpful to go back and look at what he said was the problem that led to his decision to sus suspend the examination. And he, he's, I'm going to capture that by quoting, I'm afraid it's going to be selective for the time, but it's paragraph 2.26 of his note, 19th of December 2014. I don't know if that's to hand for you. I believe my colleague has a spare unmarked copy, if, if it would be helpful for Sarah to hand you one. It's 2.26, sorry if I misread the number. It's on page 9, it's the last paragraph on page 9. Thank you. 
So we are dealing with the wider transport implications of the Elsinore policy, which was at the time an allocation that's not, not now before you. And the question in his mind as to what level of standard of certainty he needed is phrased in this way following the colon on line three. Is the present state of evidence sufficient to demonstrate the Uddlesford allocations taken together with those in the nearby districts, that issue still applies, will be sound in the sense of being compatible with the capacity of the road network? And our objections under transport has to do with the lack of evidence of the capacity of the road network. And I'm very sorry that Mr. Johnson's not here today. He's apologized to us, our client, and asked us to convey that to you. He's pre-planned arrangements, which he could not come out of. So I will do my best. I'm going to direct you, rather than give you evidence on his behalf, to where we feel that that key word, the capacity of the road network, has not been properly assessed. And it's interesting to note what Inspector Foster then said. He said, I am unable to conclude the question has been positively sufficient, answered sufficiently positively. You, the ULP is not constructed on the kind of contingent basis which appears to be suggested. In paragraph 25 of the Statement of Common Ground, it's like deja vu. A statement of common ground is walked up to the inquiry doors again today with a new one. And what, what happened at that point and what we have now is a continual promise to continue to look at the issue. That's what the statement of common ground in my early read does. I've not had much time to look at it in terms of whether it's mirroring the problems. But it is endemic in this plan-making process that since from 2014, this council has known that the issue of capacity on the local road network and the trunk road will be a key issue. So that was 2014. We feel that the history of the plan making has led to a situation where the same problem has arisen. In 2017, Great Dunmo Town Council submitted a Reg 18 submission which says that the transport information available to assess the capacity on the local road network for the receiving allocations and the housing growth was insufficient to comment on. On my advice, and, and they're, they're, they instructed Steve Johnston to look at what was available, and Mr. Johnston provided technical note one, which is dated January 18. And I would draw your attention to those, his executive summary and the key points. And it comes down to a lack of a model which can demonstrate capacity. And he has a lot of technical points to make about trip assignment, the width of the carriageways of the trunk road, the A120, not being wide enough, the 
calls into question the single point of access for 10,000 dwellings. The known lack of public transport to relieve capacity on the local road network problems. The strip of the A120 as it approaches the M11, which has historic rates of high road safety questions. These issues are still with us today. Great Dunmo's council raised these issues repeatedly through planning policy workshops leading up to being with you today. We've asked for detailed responses to these concerns. But in summary, we've asked for the modeling to be done. It is our position that the modeling that is necessary to answer the question that led to Inspector Foster's decision, there was not adequate knowledge as to the capacity of the road network has still not been done. That is our position. We then have in July 2018, Inspector Clue's comments about the lack of adequate modeling. We've not had an opportunity to go through the recent documents that were provided. We'll look at those and see if we have any further comments on that in terms of the Northeast Essex authorities. We then get to the Reg 19 submission. And I would urge you, especially because I don't have the ability to give you Mr. Johnson's technical appraisal, to look at his note TN2, technical note 2, dated August 2018. It was appended to Great Dunmo's Reg 19 submission. I think it's Appendix 1 or 2 from memory. He's raising the same concerns. There is not a model that assesses road capacity. There are interchange problems. There's the single point of access problem. There's no public transport suitable to relieve the road impacts. There's a stretch of the A120 as it approaches M11. It's still a problem. And in, in that regard, uh, Mr. Thompson's handed me a piece of paper because he's got more local knowledge than me, which shows the backup from this local knowledge. He's sitting in the room. You can interrogate him yourself. He knows what happens as you leave the A, if you approach the M11 on the A120. You have two kilometers of backup at the moment. There is a traffic problem here which is not being assessed and which impacts on this site's suitability. I have that piece of paper if you need it. Yeah. Also, Mr. Thompson could expand if you need any clarification. So... I, I've been asking my clients, well, what was known in Reg 19 stage as to how land security is going to deal with this? Because I think you have to be fair in these, in these examinations in the lead up to them. Sorry. sorry. 
there was a plan that was handed out as a kind of indicative plan. I'm not sure where it sits in your document. It's a Vectos document. Public transport links via the existing highway network. Can you just hold that up? Maybe somebody can it's, understand where it's come from. So. There's a lot of documents around, and I'm, I'm really sorry I can't identify which plan it's taken from. But the point is, it was a very early nebulous suggestion for some type of public transport. That's what Land Securities was saying. Looks like we're going to need some kind of public transport, and at this stage, it was proposed to be some form of light rail which sounds good. I don't know if you know the light rail in uh, Manchester, Nottingham, Bordeaux City is a classic example where high-quality light rail has relieved road network congestion. Because remember, the question is capacity on the local road network. It all comes back to that one question. So... Oh, well, I've lost my papers... We had a January 2019 document produced, and I do have a, a, a reference document for you to. It's the position paper, Stansted to Braintree, Rapid Transit System. It's a progress report on Lansac's suggestion of the light rail or alternative public transport. But the time frame is important. It's January 19. This plan has been submitted and there are questions being raised by the councils. The questions being raised by the council's sustainability consultants as to the suitability of the site given the lack of public transport because the lack of the capacity on the road network. The elephant in the room has not gone away. This January report concludes that a light rail is going to be too expensive and the public transport, if it's to be delivered alongside the garden neighborhood, needs to be some other form. Following that report, we had a 21 June document, which was a supplementary technical study. We're now less than a month away from this examination, and what looked like a tram has graphically become, has become a bus. And that's what's happened. This allocation is not premised on a public transport system that's clean, clean running, sustainable. It's a bus. And you can put a graphic on the front of your paper that makes the bus look like a tram, but it's not a, it's not a tram. And there will be bus users in this room who know if you have a dedicated bus lane, there's the St. Ives to Cambridge guided busway, it works like a tram. It's got wheels, but it has a clear route. You're not impeded by cyclists or taxis or cars using the lane. I'm a bus user in Cambridge. A bus service that does not have a dedicated bus lane does not surface and work like a, a, a rapid transit system. 
So, so we then had Mr. Johnson's request for some further information on the 21 June note about how the bus system was going to address the need for public transport to deal with the capacity problem. Mr. Johnson will respond to the 11th of July note that supplements the 21 June document. We also would request that you drive the route that's proposed. And my client from the Dumbo Town Council, Appendix 6 to our Reg 19 statement, gives you a snapshot of the problems of using the local road network for buses. She, she would ask through me if you could drive the route, but in lieu of being able to do that, she's provided photographs of the problems that would be encountered by running a bus on a local road network. Then, of course, today we have the new document presented dated 21, uh, dated June, I beg your pardon, there's no date on it, which is TN10. And as I sought to clarify, I thought perhaps this was something that we were unaware of but had been in the evidence base. This is another new technical document intended to underpin the problem that Inspector Foster identified in December 14. There's a capacity on the local road network problem and there needs to be a solution to that to justify housing growth, especially housing growth in this location of Eastern Park at this scale. So I will ask Mr. Johnson to comment on this additional document as well and provide a supplementary note to you. But my, my firm feeling is we cannot reach that standard of sufficient evidence base to have a reasonable prospect of delivery. The evidence base is uncertain. There is also, there is also a dispute about the evidence base. And I believe from reading the Statement of Common Ground, there is now a concession that Mr. Johnson was right the modeling doesn't do the job properly. Because I, I pointed this out to Ms. Dean just in the break, and there's the word not. I thought, oh, they've got a typo in their document. But it does appear, I would rather reserve my position after I've had a chance to carefully consider it, there is agreement that the modeling that's been done does not do the capacity assessment that is needed to give you the certainty that the road network can cope. So I will make further submissions on that. So we, we get to the situation now where we have a, a BRT, which is a bus. We have about 1,500 houses being promoted at the moment. You are being asked to approve an allocation for a garden community. And it is our firm view that what's on the table does not have the financial commitment of one of the biggest land developing companies in this country to deliver the garden neighborhood principles. Of all the developers in this room, they could afford to do this right and create a model garden neighborhood. 
but that is not the approach that we believe has been adopted. And there's been shortcuts done on the evidence base such that the allocation will not deliver a garden neighborhood. It may deliver 1,500 houses with the residents commuting to destinations to Stansted by bus. That is not what's being proposed in the plan. This is not a 1,500 house allocation with a bus service. If to do so would breach the principles for sustainable development in the local plan requirement. We wouldn't get there. And I do believe that if you read carefully Mr. Justice Jay's decision in the Wielden case, different issues, same question. Was there an adequate evidence base before the local authority and before the inspectors to make the judgments that were made on the risk, in that case, to the intensification of nitrogen deposition on Ashdown Forest? Different facts, but same problem. And I think really, in a simple reading of the case, the question was the matter should have been explored further. And that's why we have requested a further day to look at the transport. We feel we're in a wheeled-in situation where there's questions that need to be answered before the, a final decision on transport can be made. I'll just check my notes. In the Reg 19 submission that Mr. Johnston made, the key paragraphs for you to refer to, to read over in detail the comments I've summarized, are found in section 2.02 to 2.04. But it's, it's instructive to read his comment at 2.05. And what he's done, it's very helpfully done, clipped, if you will, comments from other reports, so it's before you. And the reason recited is that it's very complex to do this model. And I have no doubt that it's complex to do the kind of road modeling that we say needs to be done with the type of modeling software that's available. And I risk being challenged here, but I think he's suggesting it should be a Saturn model. It's a complex modeling tool. And he feels that the modeling tool that's been deployed is not the correct modeling tool for the problem at hand. I also would refer you to our um, sections in our hearing statement that deal with this. These are sections or paragraphs 13 to 21. So to summarize, we've got two problems now. We've got a problem with the base modeling on the capacity of the road network, and we've got a problem on the modeling of the bus rapid transit system. Two models, two issues to be examined, and our view is the information is insufficient. I'll just make sure I've covered that. That's the general headline issue. There's a second issue that's arisen in what I would call my, my close review of the 21 June report. Now, it may be that it's appropriate for me to pause those comments because those get into some details as to, for example, reassignment of the what appears to be 
and I stand to be corrected, reassignment of one of the great Dunmo bypasses along the southern edge of the city, or the town, where there's a suggestion that that route could be used as part of the bus transport link. And for reasons which are known by local knowledge, it does not appear that that the use of that road for a, a kind of dedicated bus route would work because of existing, house, existing traffic and also the fact that there are new allocations to the west of it that would cause problems. That brings me on to a bigger question about what is before you in terms of what's being proposed. So you've got the detail to be examined, but you also have from the Jacobs report several maps that are multicolored, and I, I know these will be familiar to, the, to you and also to the team supporting Landsec and the Council. With the best will in the world, I cannot understand, and I'm sure there's others in the room with me, exactly who's paying for what, when it will be delivered, and I think an important question is, does it come out of Landsec's pocket? Are they providing it? Is the council sharing that cost? Is Essex County Council Highway sharing that cost? Are they looking to the Department for Transport to fund that? I think this was an issue that was touched on, the need for public funding. We were told, very bold statement, Landsec was going to fund it all. I think we need, before we wrap up this examination on transport, every colored segment of the Jacobs maps identified as whether this is publicly funded or privately funded, and what's the delivery time frame? Because when you read the hearing statement from Landsec, it, it makes you cry. It talks about aspiration. If that is what they're committing in their hearing statement to an aspirational bus transport system, that's not good enough. So I think we need an opportunity to understand segment by segment what is being funded by whom and when, so we can marry that up with the delivery rates and understand if there's going to be excess capacity transferred to the A120 or other local road route networks that's going to cause further problems. So I would, I would, through you, ask for clarification on every segment of the route. We also heard this morning, rather alarmingly, that Stansted doesn't want to protect the infrastructure terminus point at the airport. Well, if you can't get to the airport, the bus transport system is not going to deliver a modal shift. It's the only justification for the bus transport is that commuters will go into Stansted and go south to go to London or go north to go to Cambridge. So how certain is it that this modal shift will work if there's no commitment on the terminus because the bus itself doesn't solve the problem. It gets you to another transport point to move forward in your journey because I think it, it would be absolutely incredulous to, to believe that these residents are all going to work at Stansted. They're going to go north to Cambridge to the Science Park or they're going to go south into London. So we need to understand how of a much of a risk the terminus point is. That, that came out of this morning's comments. I think I'm going to stop there for the moment. I'm sure I'll have other comments. 
those are our general principal concerns on transport. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there may be technical points that are going to be raised. I'm happy to take notes and respond to those in, with Mr. Johnson's assistance. I can't do it myself. Thank you. That's helpful. Can I ask, I don't know who's the most appropriate, Mr. Sprunt, or... Yes, um, if I could just make a brief comment, and then I'll call on Alistair Gregory at WI, from WIG um, <clears throat> on uh, capacity of the uh, road network, but also on the TN10 technical note, I think, just to, just to cover that. And then also we've got David Sprunt from Essex County Council. Behind uh, those two, we've also got Martin Whittles on the BRT. You heard from him, so I think... I'm aware that some of this is, I think, things that have been covered, but um, we'll just try and summarise if we can. Just a very brief point from me first, then. Um, it's said that what I said is there needs to be a reasonable prospect of delivery. Point of detail, I did take you to 177 of the framework, which talks about a reasonable prospect that planned infrastructure is deliverable in a timely fashion. That's the um, test that we're applying against a proportionate evidence base. So there, there's a tendency, I would say, to mischaracterise that as delivery and likelihood and, and everything else. It's just right, and I'm sure you will, come back to what the actual wording is. Um, <clears throat> so then beyond that, um, can I just bring in firstly um, Alistair Gregory from WIG on the question of capacity of the road network. Thank you. Um, we just heard a lot of comments about the modelling methodology, which I think we covered in some detail yesterday, so I, I won't go um, into much detail here, but it might be useful just to provide a, a brief summary of some of the key points that we did discuss yesterday. Um, the first one is that there is no one set approach for all local plans that must be adopted in terms of the way they're assessed with regards to transport. Um, the local plan transport study that's been undertaken was produced on an agreed basis with Highways England and Essex County Council, the two highway authorities responsible for the road network within Uttlesford. Um, the methodology that was used follows the recommended approach as set out in the MPPF. It was both proportionate and robust. This same methodology has been used for other local plans for similar rural districts, and these plans have been found sound at examination. Um, the assessment itself is very robust, um, and this was on purpose. Sorry, um, this, this was on purpose and a specific response to the inspector's comments from the previous withdrawn local plan. Um, the feedback that you just heard was that one of the issues that the inspector raised at the previous inquiry was that um, committed development in adjacent districts perhaps wasn't taken into account. Um, as appropriately as it should have been done at the previous uh, local plan. So when we produced the transport study uh, that's before you now, we went to quite considerable lengths to put together a very detailed uncertainty log to make sure that committed development was identified in all adjacent districts to Uttlesford uh, and also within the district. Um, and that was agreed, and the study area itself was discussed and agreed at the study outset with all adjacent authorities to Uttlesford, um, and the study area was amended as a result of those discussions. Um, so we feel that that particular issue has been addressed. The, the other reason that the study is very robust is that the, the study takes no account, it makes no reductions for modal shift. Um, so it takes into account none of the benefits that you will you will reap from sustainable travel, from trips being internalised within garden communities and <clears throat> the effects that garden communities 
have whereby they reduce the need to travel in the first instance. So none of those benefits are recognised and the study is based on existing modal proportions from 2011 census data. So I think that's all we'd like to say on the modelling approach. Um, I think that leads on quite nicely to... The you just made, sorry for people who are not technically... There was mention of a Saturn model. What's the difference between that and the model you've used? Um, well, Saturn is just another piece of software. The modelling software that we've used is called Visum. Um, they're two very similar... Saturn's basically it's an older piece of software. Um, Visum's slightly more up to date and it's got a slightly different graphical user interface, but for all intents and purposes, it does exactly the same job. Um, we've used Visum. We've got a detailed Visum representation of the highway network within the district and beyond, and that's been used as a tool to assign trips onto the highway network. Um, and as I explained yesterday, the process then it's it's a hybrid VISM stroke spreadsheet methodology that's been used. So the VISM model assigns trips onto the network. Those trips have then been extracted from the model and assessed in a spreadsheet against base traffic flows. Um, beyond that point, the, the information is represented graphically using GIS to produce the stress plans that indicate the areas of the network that are likely to experience pressure with the addition of committed development and local plan growth. Um, and those plans have then been used as a guide to indicate where junctions are likely to require improvement. Um, and again, just to stress, this is a strategic level study um, and it's based on a lot of local knowledge from the local highway authority as to which junctions already experience difficulties and which junctions are close to capacity and which junctions, based on the findings of the study, are forecast to be likely to be either closer to or beyond capacity. And those are the junctions that we've focused on and identified mitigation for. Modelling and human uh, knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it is no different to the way that a transport assessment will be taken, which is traditionally undertaken on a, man, a completely manual basis. The, the only real difference to that is that the model has been used to assign the trips onto the network. So rather than having to do it all manually, the model has been used to do, to do that element of the work. So... If I could just continue then, because it, th there was a point that was also raised about the additional information that's been submitted earlier today. Um, and uh, perhaps I should just clarify that um, this is, the, the document that was appended to the Statement of Common Ground that's been submitted was a document produced by WIG. Uh, and this was a piece of additional sensitivity testing that was commissioned by Landsec. Uh, and that piece of work was commissioned with the agreement of Uttlesford District Council council and Essex County Council uh, for WYG to undertake uh, just to provide some further clarity. Um, the findings from that work don't influence the mitigation strategy that had already been agreed and identified for the A120 corridor uh, and that strategy is set out in technical note 9 uh, which is titled the A120 corridor mitigation strategy and that is dated June 2018. So that strategy was agreed a year ago and has been documented throughout the course of the local plan process. Um, the reference for that particular document is 1500.16.
unless there's any other questions, I think that's all I've got to say on those issues. David, do you want to come in? No, I don't. I haven't got any further questions. Mr. Sprunt, do you want to add? Yeah, I'll try and pick up some of, some of the other points that were made, and uh, I might get Mr. Whistles to just come and ask her, uh, explain a little bit more about the light rail and the piece of work that was done there. Um, I'll try and take them in order of which I, I noted them down, so if I've forgotten one, um, please excuse me or, or, or come back to me. Um, just on going right back to the very beginning and talking about the 2014 examination, I was actually at that examination and the, the issue that was raised on the, the rural network was a very specific one in relation to Elsinham and in fact the, the, the route between Elsinham and um, Stanton Mount Fitchett was a, of a particular issue for the inspector and we were questioned quite um, some detail about that and that, that was where a lot of the issues revised. It wasn't on the wider uh, and network specifically. That's just that one. In terms of the A120, um, the work that has been done does show that that will be under stress um, by the time the end of the plan comes along, but that doesn't mean just because it's at capacity that it's at standstill. I think this is a, possibly a, a misconception sometimes that uh, links will therefore be at capacity. It might mean it won't be travelling at 60 miles an hour, you'll be travelling at 40 or 50 miles an hour, but the road will still run. So uh, you won't be looking at uh, traffic diverting onto other routes just because that route slowed down uh, very slightly, particularly around here where the minor road network isn't going to be any quicker than, than staying on uh, the A120 at a, a slightly slower speed, um, potentially. So um, we don't feel that, we feel that the piece of work that's been done, and I think one of the, probably the main difference between Saturn and the piece of work that was done is that there isn't a reassignment onto the rest of the network as part of that, that we don't feel it would reassign anyway because the main road would remain still the best route for, for traffic to use. And it's also worth noting that um, obviously Highways England have been involved in, in this process alongside us and they haven't raised any issues about the capacity of, of the A120. They do obviously continue to monitor their network continuously. So if things arrive in the future where they feel there's a need for an intervention, um, that they would inevitably put that on their long-term RIS programme, which we've spoken about before. I'm not going to specifically mention Junction 8 because I think we've, we've probably done that to death in, in previous sessions, but obviously the same, same conditions uh, apply um, there. Um, I think it was mentioned also about a single point of access to Great Eastern. Um, obviously the access that's being provided or, or, or being discussed at the moment is a, is a dual carriageway access which does uh, provide additional capacity over a normal two-way road if there were to be um, some problems. Uh, but there is in fact a second access that we asked to be put in place uh, just in case uh, that single access was proven over time uh, not to be um, suitable. The second access actually is a uh, currently identified as a route for sustainable transport only and that's what we would like to see it remain as. However, it would be built to a standard which could take uh, traffic from the development should that be necessary at some point in the future. So there would be a secondary access onto Woodside Way as an alternative to, to using the, the direct dual carriageway access. It's worth pointing out that there's no specific development on the dual carriageway. And once you get into development, 
uh, the, the circular route that's being planned. Actually, there's obviously two roads coming in, so once again, if one of those got blocked, you could come out in the alternative direction. So we feel it's, it's going to be very much a monitor and manage type approach on, on that in, in terms of looking forward to the future. Um, just in terms, I think the last point it really comes to the um, public transport element. Uh, we have talked, I think, in previous sessions at length about the, uh, the BRT. Um, Dunwell BRT can uh, emulate um, light rail, so it shouldn't be seen as the poor man's light rail uh, by any means. It's an alternative that is better suited sometimes to certain situations. Light rail generally is in very large towns. Nottingham was mentioned, that's three quarters of a million population. A very different situation to, to what we're talking about here. One of the benefits of buses is that they can divert to alternative routes if new developments come up in the future, so they do offer much more flexibility. What we're looking for in the final solution is quite a lot of off-road or dedicated running for the buses, so they would be doing exactly what uh, was, was being mentioned. They would have significant priority over other vehicles where they would be running on uh, with traffic. They're either on relatively likely traffic roads or they would be getting some form of uh, on-road uh, priority as well. Um, if you'd like a little bit more detail about the bus rapid transit, my colleague Martin Mittles can come and give you a bit more. But if you're happy with where we are on that, uh, we, we can park it there. Thank you. These, the alternative routes are the ones that would be off-road, off for want of a better word. Um, those, are those safeguarded routes in the plan? or uh, Presumably they're going across land that's not owned by <coughs> the Highways Authority or the Council or the developer? They're, they're, they're routes primarily which are within a particularly the, the section that we're particularly talking about from Dunmo uh, to Stansted. The bits are within the um, curtilage of the um, Great Eastern Development. Uh, there, there is a section between the northwest end of that and the um, airport, uh, which is in a third-party ownership, but um, the developers have been having discussions with the landowners. Maybe they can clarify a bit more as to where those discussions are. But they are happy that that route can be delivered and it would be fully funded, they've indicated by themselves, between Dunmo and Stansted. That was one of the other questions, wasn't it, about funding and things. So that, that's been confirmed. Mr Whittles, did you want to add anything? Yeah, it's, it's probably, I mean, I'd, I'd just like to sort of reinforce um, the um, uh, BRT um, not being seen as bus, as Ms. Mr. Sprint has indicated. Uh, in the January um, note, um, progress note, it does give lots of examples of BRT schemes um, around the UK and elsewhere. Um, in addition, in terms of there was a comment on the um, the, the well, no, sorry, an, an additional to that. Sorry, before I move off that topic, um, the environmental. It was indicated that uh, tram was far more environmentally friendly. Well, that um, 
there are tables that have compared the different environmental impacts of different modes, and the BRT is very close to tram, and, the, and we've costed for the latest technology in our um, in our vehicles. So it would be assumed that they would be using very clean fuel, if not electric. Um, there was a comment around the different colours on maps. Um, in the report of 21st of June, there's a table 2.4 that explains why we've coloured uh, the, them the way we have. It's not about who pays for what. It's more about saying, uh, talking about the level of segregation. And that's why we've used different colours to explain that from which we can, be, uh, we can then work out the costs. On funding... Um, just to a sort of, uh, you know, uh, this is about the sort of the purpose of that technical note. The purpose of the technical note of the 21st of June, it was not for Jacobs as a consultancy to say who's going to pay for which bits. We wanted to come up with estimates of the costs, which we did in the report. And we also clearly set out in table 2.24 on page 28 of that report, how it can be broken, how, um, uh, uh, what, what is the cost and what, the intervention, in, uh, what type of intervention would be needed on each section. And obviously we heard from Lansec yesterday who were saying, yes, we'll pick up the cost over um, ar around uh, the, the, the Eastern Park sections. The other thing about breaking it down that way is a point I did make two days ago, I think now, that this is about coming up with a robust strategy that we know works in different, different possible funding um, scenarios. And one of the key things of our modelling is that where we did have the, the a vehicle, the bus rapid transit vehicle, running with traffic, we picked up the journey times from the roads to do that, and we established that with sort of big sections, yes, of segregated route that um, the developers will put in around the garden communities, where we did need to run it on, on, a di on, on other roads, where there would be traffic, we've, we've, we've factored that into, in, in, into the modelling. There was also sort of indication um, that the modelling didn't uh, cover... Uh, some of the subtleties of, um, of movements. The model itself picks up, that we've used for the public transport modelling, picks up a wide area, has public uh, transport routes uh, and the rail routes um, going to surrounding regions, to London, to Cambridge, to Ipswich, uh, wherever. So, so therefore... Um, I am confident um, that 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 we are picking up the um, the, 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 the the changes uh, that, that could happen. And the other thing about the modelling that we've done for public transport is we do take account of the fact that when you build the large new communities, the distribution can will change because there'll be different draws and pulls. Um, 
I think I think I think I think um, you know that, that, that was just on those points. I thought it useful to to, to come back. Thank you. Thank you. That's helpful, Mr. Very sorry. Um, just on a point of clarification, I want to make sure you go away with the, the right information. Um, you asked about whether the, the site, uh, the, the BRT route is within the site. Um, the, the large proportion of it is, but some of it is not. Um, and you'll remember we discussed, you'll recall we discussed um, Landsec's uh, representation where they, they've suggested that the site should be extended to include the BRT routes and the country park. Uh, and I indicated that if, if you were minded to do that, then uh, the council wouldn't object so long as those areas were differentiated from the main part of development. Thank you. Thank you. Are there any other comments on transport? Did you want to come back? Yes, thank you. When Mr. Johnson was talking about modelling, he was talking about a modelling that would capture the base flows. What is the current situation on the road network? And what will the growth in the area do to it? He's noted in his Reg 19 report, paragraph 2.02, .02, subsection 4, little i4, it's page two. And I've gone back to check it, and it's in the YWG report, that the VISM model contains no base traffic flows. That is the evidence base we are saying is missing, and that until that base traffic flow work has been done, which by their own admission is difficult to do, it needs to be done, the VISM model, in our view, is inappropriate for the type of land allocation that's being proposed. It needs, in Mr. Johnston's professional judgment, it's written out in his report, the modeling is not fit for purpose. And it, it's because the VISM, VISM model contains no base flows. It's only been used to assign development traffic flows onto the highway. The model doesn't consider junction operation, i.e. there's no trip assignment due to delays, and the resultant development trip assignment provides demand flows that represents the routes taken in absence of network constraints. That's, that's, UD, that's UDC's report. That's Mr. Johnston's problem. Even on their own evidence, they admit deficiencies in the information. So there is a big difference between the VISM model and what Mr. Johnston said needs to be done, which is the Saturn model. Also, if you move through Mr. Johnson's report addressing the question about wind capacity constraints, basically for you and me, when traffic gets so bad, you get off the road and you go elsewhere, you reassign your journey or you find another route. He talks about this. And the, the council's evidence is, quoting from the Y, sorry, I always get this wrong, the WYG note on page nine, the links therefore operate satisfactorily between 75 and 100% stress, albeit with reduced performance in terms of journey times and journey time reliability in comparison. But WYG note in their own evidence, 
that drivers may divert to alternative routes. So that diversion has, has on the council's own case, needs to be factored in. And that is why we come back to the need for a, a complex model, as difficult as it is, based on WYG's own assessment of the limitations of the VISA model. Thank you. Do you want to come back on that, Mr Gregory? Yes, please. Um, I think there's some slight misunderstanding that uh, our assessment hasn't un uh, taken into account base traffic flows on the network. It has considered uh, existing conditions on the network and it does consider base traffic flows. Yes, it's correct that our model doesn't have a base. So the, the model doesn't contain base traffic flows, but that's taken into account in the spreadsheet methodology that I mentioned earlier. I think the points that have just been raised are the professional opinion of Mr Johnston, and it's unfortunate that he's not here today to express them himself, but um, our professional opinion is that the modelling that's been undertaken is fit for purpose and appropriate for this level of detail required for the local plan. And if I could just um, remind the inspectors that there is no one set approach for all local plans that must be adopted in terms of the way transport studies are done in support of local plans. Can I just ask you, the other point that was raised was about um, drivers diverting, that there's been no assessment. Um, that, that's correct. And the, the model isn't capable of reassigning trips to reflect congestion on the network. Um, and as I explained in the evidence that we provided yesterday, um, the methodology that we've applied for the transport study, we believe is the better methodology to use at the strategic level because it essentially shows you the demand flows for where traffic will go in the absence of congestion. Um, so the strategy is to ensure that those drivers stay using the routes that they prefer to, to use by making sure that improvements are targeted at strategic junctions to ensure that they have no need to divert. That, I mean, the last thing we want to be doing is providing improvements on the wider um, network, i.e. lower category country lanes, which would incur a encourage greater diversion off the main routes onto less suitable minor roads. Um, I mean, it just goes against the whole ethos of um, hierarchy of roads. Thank you. Are there any more points on how Mr. Bird? Yeah, having kindly arranged to complete the session by four o'clock when I have to go, I thought I'll at least say something. <laughs> now, two, two very minor points, if I may. Um, I haven't really got much to add to, to a very, I think, um, full response given by the, by the authorities. Just two points. Um, number one, uh, you know, sometimes one needs to just take a step back on these things and, and just look at, at where... Eastern Park is located, and, and, and this isn't meant to be a promotional thing, but it's a factual thing. Um, you know, it is located immediately adjacent to the largest employer in the region, um, and you might say, where better else to put housing? And it's also located adjacent to um, a dual carriageway section of the A120. Um, and and just finally, on the this, just to try and sort of add further clarification, if, if people could perhaps look at paragraph 3.9 um, of the document, um, the Statement of Common Ground submitted yesterday. Um, and, and while people are looking that up, just, just to make the point 
of, and I think um, Mr. Gregory did make the point, this was a sensitivity test. The flows used in this test are lower than the more robust analysis that's already been submitted and been available for many months. So this makes it better. It doesn't make it worse, so to speak. But if you just look at um, paragraph 3.9, and this is what Mr. Gregory was saying when he said it's a, it's a combination of modeling and spreadsheet. So you, you can see there we have worked through methodically base flows 2016. That's the flows on the road at the network moment. Reference that case. That's the growth that happens outside of Uttlesford, other growth that's happening. Local plan, uh, that's the growth that would take place up to the end of the local plan period. And then full build-out, that is taking into account the full build-out of um, the garden towns specifically in relation to this assessment, West of Braintree and uh, Eastern Park. So, and then those, I won't go through it now, but those are then being compared with the capacities available on an hourly basis uh, on the A120. I know it does. I don't know if it's me or one too close or too gets, far away. everybody gets a turn of the dodgy microphone. It? Oh, right. I think it's my turn. <laughs> I shall I try this one. Um, and, and those flows have then gone on to be used in, in, as a comparison with the capacity available. So, so those base flows have, uh, as Mr. Gregory said, been fully taken into account. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> Are there any other points on highway matters that anybody want? Do you want to come back on? I do have one further point. When I was referring to the Jacobs multicolored maps, what we need clarification of is the timing of the segments that are segregated routes, because it's very unclear. And I think there's a lot of hedging your bets in the document. So whether there's a worst case and a best case to understand exactly how much of the bus route will be a segregated route and how much of it will rely on using the local roads. It's not just about who's going to fund it, but what, what is the infrastructure actually going to be at the end of the day? How segregated will the buses be? Will they be a St. Ives to Cambridge guided bus? Will it be a curb? Will it be a bus stop? We need to know for the certainty of the delivery of the BRT how much segregation is proposed and what is the delivery timescales for those segregated routes. The other thing I'd like to draw your attention to is the reference to the BRT document. Mr. Johnston asked me to read this out, and I'm only going to read out part of it because I think I've covered his points. He was the designer of the fast track route A quoted in the June 21 document at table 3.1. It said, it was, everything was possible to deliver, done to deliver modal split, including lots of off-road running, free fares for residents, purpose design and built buses, and removing whole swathes of on-street parking and other obstacles from the route. So this is his experience and how they achieved a bus rapid transit system. It averages 15% modal split over 12 year, over its 12-year life, achieved at a whole life cost of about 10 million pounds per 1% modal split. It runs from Bluewater to Dartford with its direct rail link to London. So 
in his view, it has more pull for users. The operation in physical costs quoted in the 21st June document at tables 2-2 to 2-16 and 4-3 are not realistic when compared to a real scheme. And that is why he's giving you his experience with the scheme that's quoted in their document. He knows what it costs to deliver it, and he's saying the figures in the June 21st document are not realistic. Do you want to come back on any of those points, Mr. Whittles? Um, yeah, uh, just quickly. So on, on the seg segregation question, um, I think I'd uh, refer back to my previous answer where uh, we, the color coding says the level of segregation um, on each section. Um, and, and, and then you can sort of see in table 2.4 the root type, what it means. We give examples under that of what the different segregation means or joint running means. We then um, also give maps showing what we expect, how we expect um, the route to look up to 2033 and then post-2033. We then, in table 2.4, at 2.24, uh, we, um, uh, we, we further explain uh, what sections can, can be, um, what, 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 what intervention is, is, is in, in which uh, part of the route, um, either before 33 or after, after 33. Um, possibly there is, you know, hedging the bets, but I, partly the purpose of the report is, is around setting a strategy. It is not to provide too much detail at this point in time because that work necessarily has to follow. In terms of costs, I can only say that we have, we have benchmarked costs against other schemes we have um, sought um, numerous advice on the sort of the costs and, and running costs. Um, and in terms of the capital cost as well, we have consulted with engineering teams um, and uh, checked that you know, the, um, the, the estimates we're providing are realistic. Um, but, but again, you know, there, there does come a point in time when... Um, you stop doing a strategic plan and start going on to the detail. Any work on doing? I know this report recommended, as they often do, these reports recommended further work. Is there any more work ongoing or commissioned at the present time? There's nothing more specific at the, at the present time because obviously that would be the next step and it would be dependent on, for instance, the developments moving forwards uh, in the future so that you'd then move to the next stage of detail. Otherwise, you could be wasting quite large sums of money if there isn't anything to progress.
Okay. With your permission, please. I'd like to have Landsec's up-to-date position on discussions with the landowner on the large segment of land that's not within their land holdings that the BRT would need to run on. It's the long, straight, green stretch. Yeah. Are you able to provide anything on that, Mr. Warren? All, all I can say, ma'am, because these things are obviously commercially sensitive, Absolutely. is that discussions are continuing, as you'd expect them to. Um, but the, one of the very reasons why the Landsec is extremely keen on a red line definition to the site allocation boundary is um, in case, and one hopes that it wouldn't come to this, compulsory purchase powers are required in due course. But we hope that isn't the case. Does that answer your question? Have you got any further? Short answer is no, it doesn't answer the question of whether there's a risk to the delivery of that segment of the BRT. Well, yeah, obviously the discussions are ongoing. Yeah. And that's, yeah. It's not a certainty at the moment. <coughs> Mr. Ath Can I just make one very quick point, and it's more directed towards the, the council on this. Um, Obviously, CPO has been, has been put forward in, in several documents around how that issue could be resolved. Um, given that uh, in order to um, have a CPO, there's a very high public interest test that has to be satisfied for that process to be successful. And that has to be something that, that has to be led by um, the local authority. It can't be done by, by the developer in, in isolation. Perhaps the council could clarify, is that something that they would be willing to um, go down that route and, and undertake that um, if, for example, uh, the developer is unable to um, acquire that third-party land for this, this transit link? Thank you. Can you just put your card down, both of you, so that I know that you... Thank you. Mr Miles or Mr Ranatunga... Are we waiting? John, is it a shop? We're aware it's, it's, it, is, it is referred to in the policy, so we're just going to give you the reference to that. Okay, that's fine. Shall I listen to Mr. Thompson while you're looking for? Yeah, that's fine. Um, a, a very short point of clarification with respect to the Stansted Airport link to the to the rail line. Um, in the discussion, it is sometimes one gets the impression that that is a link directly onto the main London Cambridge line. That, of course, is not the case. The airport is served through a single spur coming off the main line that goes through a single tunnel. And from the 20 years that I've used it as a commuter, I know very well that frequently the capacity is insufficient to cope with the people uh, who use it at the moment. So that is one constraint on that link. The second constraint is that the service from Stamsted Airport to, to Cambridge is, is rudimentary. Uh, it's sort of like a toy train and goes trundling off around the countryside and takes hours to get there. So it is totally different from accessing the mainline rail at Bishop Stortford, Audley End or one of the other st stations that might have been spoken of. Are you talking about rail? I'm, to I'm, I'm talking about the rail link at Stansted Airport. Right, okay. It, it is not on the main line. Right, okay. It is only a single track 
through a lengthy single tunnel and therefore it is inherently limited in its capacity in the context of an airport which rightly or wrongly suggests that it may grow very strongly. The council found so just to come back on Great yes. Dunmo's question about um, the level of commitment to the exercise of CPO powers, I mean, it's written into the policy is the, is the quick answer to that. Policy SP6, paragraph 25 on page 47, the council will consider the use of compulsory purchase powers to facilitate delivery of the garden community where this cannot be achieved by agreement. Thank you, that's helpful. Mr. Arthur. Just one very quick point to, to come back on that, and I, and I think that's more what I'm trying to capture with my concern with how that, that bit of the policy is worded. If this is to be a statement of clear policy intent that, that the Council are looking to do, the word consider leaves it fairly ambiguous. I think to be in the policy, it's either sort of a commitment to do it or, or, or it's not. Um, I, I just I mean, want something well, that I needs suppose, to be... I suppose consider takes into account the fact that it might not need to use it. Exactly, it does. But, but it's whether, again, if, if we're putting this, this um, RTS as the heart of the policy, as the, as the key principle of the, the GC, is that, is that actually, if it is required in order to... Um, Get, get hold of this land that's not currently in control at the moment, potentially if, if the council were then later down the line, for, for, you know, it could be a different administration, whatever, decided not to do that, that could potentially fail to deliver this, this link as a whole that, that could threaten the deliverability of that scheme that's in the policy. So I just wonder if... It, yeah, I mean, I think I think the problem with making it more certain is that there's a wide range of things to consider before you would go down the CPO, isn't it? So you don't want to be too bound by. I presume that's the the I, reason. I think it's suffi sufficiently prescriptive to have it within the policy on SP6 um, as a clear paragraph, which says we're, we're effectively we're prepared to use compulsory purchase powers, but but we'll consider the situation if and when it arises effectively. Any more points on highways? Then people know they can go if they want to who are here for highway matters. I'm sure you've got lots to do. No? Okay, so we'll assume that there's nothing more to consider on that particular point and we'll let our um, highway consultants and county council go if they, uh, they want to do so. It's just coming up to half past three, so it's probably a good point actually to have a short break and then the council can reshuffle their seats if they want to and um, some people can leave if they want to. So it's just coming up to 25 to 4. So if we take a break until 10 to and then that allows people to uh, move about. We'll come back and we'll deal with um, landscape appraisal um, and heritage, shall we, next? That seems to be, a, and then again, people, I think that's probably a big topic that people want to speak about. And then it, again, if we need to have a short break, people can then leave if they want to. We'll try and deal with it like that. Does that seem like fair to everybody? Okay, thank you.
Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. 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 Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned.
Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned.
Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Please hold, your meeting has been temporarily adjourned. Strategic landscaping, perhaps an arrow showing where the principal access is into the site. Perhaps uh, the boundary of the registered park and garden being included and uh, maybe the list of buildings within the site being, mentioned, uh, being um, noted, as well as other key factual matters that are pertinent to the development of this site. Um, so perhaps there was a misunderstanding, so that's what I mean by a concept diagram. Or perhaps alternatively, as Mr Bedford said yesterday, they really don't have the evidence. But for that, that if that is the case, that calls into question for me whether we are yet at a stage where we can be allocating this site. If we really don't have the evidence to provide a very high-level concept diagram, the sort of thing that one might draw up in, in week one of an urban design course at planning school, very basic, very high level, then I wonder whether we've really got the evidence. I have an echo. I'll try again. That sounds better, doesn't it? No. Is it? I've tried to turn it off and off. Come on, thank you. <laughs> um, so the advantages of a concept diagram would be clarity for the decision maker in due course. Um, in accordance with the MPPF, I think paragraph 157D makes it very clear that policies should have uh, a great deal of clarity for, for the decision maker. Clarity for the developer. Um, Land Securities in Baltimore have, have been drawing up uh, provisional master plans, and that's, that's great in terms of illustrating how the site might be developed. But as they go forward, they will need clarity about what may or may not be acceptable. 
Um, and also clarity for uh, local, uh, the local community, Little Eastern, and their concerns regarding the protection of their conservation area um, and prevention of coalescence of the village. All these things could be um, addressed in a concept diagram. Um, so I continue to press for that. I think it would be useful. It's been done in loads of other uh, cases across the country. It's not unreasonable at this stage. In fact, even at higher level plans, like I mentioned yesterday, the Joint Spatial, spatial Plan for the West of England, so a very high level plan covering a number of authorities. They have that sort of thing in that plan. Um, but that whole um, uh, concern brings me back to um, the issue of question one, really, which is the issue of the capacity of the site. Um, and I think I mentioned in my hearing statement that when I, when I look at this illustrative master plan, and I appreciate this is not what we're, we're examining today, but it provides a useful indication of how the site might be developed. Um, this shows me that the vast majority of the site area in the Uttlesford local plan would be covered by built form. Um, and I find that hard to reconcile with the recommendations that are set before us in the Heritage Impact Assessment, in the Development Concept Criteria Map, um, and also in the Eastern Sensitivity Map. Um, so those two maps. And also um, in the emerging maps that happened uh, between the Reg 19 plan and the final production of the HIA. I talked to you about the longevity of the evolution of that HIA yesterday, so I won't go into that again today. But back in September, we saw a plan um, not dissimilar to the concept, development concept criteria, but showing uh, the areas that are, are now shown as red, as, um, as open land and sensitive areas, and showing the potential development area as being the, the hatched area in the middle whereas now it's referred to as a potential extent of least harm, which is subtly different. So I contend that actually, if we confine the development to that, that hatched area, or even the hatched area and the yellow area, it's a much smaller area than is shown um, on the land securities master plan, um, which leads us to two options. So we either have... So, so we've got a much smaller developable area than is shown on the master plan, um, which either means... Uh, it's basic maths. We either have to build at a higher density to fit our 10,000 dwellings into that space, which I think would be contrary to the garden community principles that we're trying to establish through this plan, so higher density rather than um, what is um, being proposed at the moment, um, and would probably have impacts on the historic environment more broadly. Or we have to accept that there is a lower capacity on the site. Now, it's not the first time that we've raised this. Obviously, we raised it in our hearing statement, but way back uh, last year, um, 26th of, of September, we raised it with both the developer and Uttlesford District Council, expressing our concerns about the potential capacity of the site in relation to the impacts upon um, the historic environment and the landscape, um, particularly Eastern Park, but other heritage assets too in and around the site, whether that be the conservation area or the list of buildings within, around, within the site and around the site. So those are our concerns. We continue to have concerns about the capacity. We continue to feel that a, a concept diagram would be really useful in demonstrating how 
the recommendations from the HIA could be translated into uh, a, a suitable form of development. It's a stepping stone, if you like, between what's there now and the evidence base that we have now and ultimately through to the development plan document. Thank you. Thank you. What I'll do, I'll probably take a few comments in terms of um, heritage and then come back to you rather than to in and fro, it probably saves a little bit of time. Thank you. Uh, Charmaine Hawkins uh, speaking on behalf of the Great Dunmo um, Town Council. Um, first of all, coming back to the objection that um, Historic England have raised to the North Uttlesford site and not raising any significant objections to this site. I think we are all still struggling to understand that. Um, if you just look on the figures um, which are set and come from the HIA, the two areas seem very compatible in terms of quantity of, of heritage assets. Uh, for instance, North Uttlesford has got three scheduled monumental sites of special archaeological interest. Eastern Park has four. Eastern Park, of course, has the registered park and garden, Grade 2. Um, North Uttlesford has three Grade 1 listed buildings, whereas Eastern Park has three as well. In terms of Grade 2 star buildings, um, the North Uttlesford has nine, whereas Eastern Park has eight. Again, very similar if we look at Grade 2 listed buildings, the Eastern Park has quite a considerable larger number of 175 to 130. North Uttlesford has three con uh, four conservation areas and Eastern Park has three in or around the, the area. And a similar sort of ratio of, of non-designated heritage assets as well. So just from figures, they're very comparable. So obviously we have to look at quality and, and this is where we begin to question um, some of the information given in the HIA and, and what the objections have been based on. Um, obviously we've got the uh, historic park and garden of Eastern Lodge and we heard early on in the week how uh, the orderly end historic park and garden led to the um, dismissal of, of uh, a settlement near there because of the presence of that. Um, I want to specifically refer to the paragraph 132 of the MPPF. Um, I, can, I can read it or certainly paraphrase it, that um, where we're dealing with um, substantial harm or loss of grade two listed buildings or parks and gardens, that should be exceptional. And substantial harm or loss of designated heritage assets of the highest significance, so we're looking at grade one, grade two star, um, grade one and grade two star listed buildings and parks and gardens, or world heritage sites, this should be wholly exceptional. So we're looking at a very high baseline and where we're looking at it here in um, Eastern Park, obviously we've got a historic park and garden, so the presumption is it should be exceptional to have any significant impact on that park and garden. 
The same is true for the grade two star and grade one listed buildings, such as the church within the conservation area and Stone Hall, which I will come on to in a minute. I would agree in terms of the issue of capacity, um, and this raises issues of historic landscape and valued landscape, which is where we're going to overlap with the um, issue of landscape. Par paragraph 109 of the MPPF defines a, a valued landscape, and I think this is very applicable here. I'm look at it, looking at it entirely from a historic landscape point of view, but um, in the area of, of the phase one of development, you've got the historic park and garden, which I've already referred to. You have the deer park, which uh, I was involved in putting forward for being a historic park and garden. Unfortunately, it was turned down, and the details of the information that we put forward and the response from Historic England was included as part of our Reg 19 submission. But from that, um, Historic England did um, make it very clear that they accepted it was a legible landscape feature and it has importance as a historic land landscape associated with Eastern Lodge. So it has a level of significance, even though they didn't accept it as a historic park and garden. I was pleased that the um, more recent version of the HIA does acknowledge it to be a non-designated heritage asset, whereas previously it didn't, and therefore it is akin to the one in the Great Chesterford site. Both of them are non-designated, but they are, both have significance. The third landscape, which needs to be taken into account and is all in the same area, they kind of grade into one another, is the Garden of Stone Hall, which is the grade two star listed building. It is a private secluded garden developed by the Countess of Warwick. Um, it's a series of themed gardens and it covers a four acre site, which is still intact. It hasn't been split up or divided in any way. This was rejected in, when we put it forward as a historic park and garden, largely on the basis that the planting that she chose to undertake there was ephemeral, um, which is not the, the remit of a, a historic park and garden. However, again, it was accepted that the, the garden had um, contributed to... Uh, a greater understanding and was very well known and influential. Um, the research that we undertook, certainly it predated what is now known as an arts and crafts garden and definitely influenced um, Gertrude Jekyll, for example, and Walter Crane. It is also written in garden history as, as being the first so-called Shakespeare garden where plants from Shakespeare's plays and poems were um, Create, used to create a garden with little um, plaques denoting where, what, where they, what the origins of that were from. There's also the Living Sundial, which, if you go to the Gardens of Eastern Lodge, has been recreated over there, and it is acknowledged that it was the first attempt of producing something like that, which has much, been much copied since. So the significance of this garden is also important, and yet in the, the um, HIA, the, it simply states that it's, it wasn't 
possible to gain access. I mean, I've been fortunate that I have gained access to the site with permission, and, and therefore I've been able to see that whilst a lot of the, the, the planting has gone, there is still structural tree planting that is there from the original um, date of the, the formation of the garden. And there are features such as a, a rock garden with a, um, a waterfall cascade and where the water flows through, which arguably are part of the, the curtilage listing of the site. So the whole site should be covered by the Grade 2 star um, designation and therefore we go back to it being wholly exceptional that any development causes any harm to this site and yet we see as I've always already raised a couple of days ago that the route of the um, the, the bus transportation system is, is shown as going through that site and, and at the worst case scenario it would actually go through and demolish Stone Hall itself if the route is uh, follows the uh, the map evidence um, and even if it were to be deflected through the grounds of the, the property um, you have features and the importance of the setting around the, the actual Stone Hall to be fully considered and this raises significant concerns that you can actually develop this part of the site without causing significant, substantial harm, which the, the MPPF says should be wholly exceptional. In terms of the wider influence, having looked at the, those three gardens, there was formed the core around the Eastern Lodge, and this is fundamental. This site differs to all the, the other two that we've been considering in heritage terms because Eastern Lodge and the church form the, the, the pivotal elements to the Maynard estate around which everything else has largely been developed. And we have a snapshot of an Edwardian estate at the peak of its... Um, wealth and influence which has survived on the ground physically with very little intervention and this provides a unique set of buildings which I do not consider has been given due weight in, in the uh, consideration of the HIA and the actual um, synergy and the relationship between the buildings gives great group value which again is not addressed in the HIA I consider properly the HIA does acknowledge that the area is going to be changed from rural character to urban nature and that is a fundamental change which we consider to be unacceptable given the essence of the rural character feeding into the significance of the majority of the listed buildings and other heritage assets that we're looking at. The conservation area appraisal adopted policy by the council dated 2015 refers specifically to the open skyline and panoramic views and describes 
the site or the area as being highly sensitive to change. This approach we fully endorse and this differs markedly from what is being tabled as part of phase one in particular, that the area, particularly on the deer park, is identified as being low significance and we do not accept that. And that is contrary to, to the council's own policies that exist by way of the conservation area. The topography is also very important when considering the, the heritage assets and how they interrelate with each other and the views and vistas and how those interact with the overall significance and setting of the heritage assets. And again, the, the heritage impact assessment hasn't gone into that in any great detail yet. And those are some things which are, are very important in this particular site. Another omission that I want to draw to your attention is the local list. As, as part of our Regulation 19, we had identified a number of buildings, all of which um, form part of the Maynard Estate, and the local list hasn't been expanded to consider those. Uh, the, the local listing potential buildings which have been identified in the HIA largely relate to the, the airfield um, in the Deer Park, and we feel that there are other buildings that relate to the actual estate which should also be included. So there is a, an undervaluing of locally listed buildings. The impact of the airfield is something which has, has come out strongly both in um, the refusal to um, designate the uh, deer park as a historic park and garden and also in considering the um, significance of that area in terms of development and we maintain that the, the impact of the airfield has been exaggerated the, yes it led to a lot of trees being removed rather <laughs> drastically um, and it has changed the, the, the character of the uh, deer park prior to the second world war however the deer park has existed for seven centuries and it was founded circa 1302 uh, and there's certainly map evidence of its form uh, as it still can be read today from 1594. What was removed in the Second World War airfield was the 18th century planting and the, the deer park has, has undergone a lot of change over time, over those seven centuries, through changes to types of hunting and and the occupants of Eastern Lodge have wanted different views and different landscapes. So um, to actually say that the significance has been eroded simply because the loss of some trees, which, yes, they were important as part of the 18th century landscape character, but that alone is not the key to the deer park. It goes on a lot further than that. There's also been... Um, devaluing of the, the, the deer park with regards to the archaeology and the more recent archaeological reports that have been coming out of place services have revealed that there is a lot of physical evidence of the palisade fencing enclosure of the deer park and that there's a high probability that remains do survive even under the airfield notwithstanding its quite major impact so the actual 
to, to, to base the low um, sensitivity of that area on the impact of the airfield, I'm suggesting is, is incorrect and is not based on what further evidence that's coming forward. Um, we've heard a lot over the last few days about need for more information. Um, I'm highlighting areas in the HIA where there's a lack of information, but certainly on the archaeology side, that's another aspect where there is need for more, <coughs> excuse me, more information. Um, we don't know fully what significance in terms of archaeology there is. Um, that we know that there is a high status villa in one location, but there is a lot more work to be done to see whether this would indeed restrict the potential to develop the site. So there are a number of shortfalls on the information, um, which um, I concur with Historic England that the, the, the capacity for the site to take development is still the amount of development proposed is still unclear. The approach still being taken is reliance on public benefit outweighing the harm, and I maintain that that does not comply with the provisions of the MPPF and the level of harm which is actually assessed from our point of view would be very significant to the point that we feel that you shouldn't be developing the area of the deer park and around um, the uh, historic park and garden and obviously stone hall as well um, that being the case, the development would need to be combined, confined to the area of the quarry, which is previously developed land when it becomes extant. That's, I think, all I want to say at the moment. Thank you. Is anybody else? Mr Dodsley. Thank you. I'm sure on your, uh, your site visit you would have driven up our park road, because there's two park roads, there's one at North Uttersford as well. Um, you would have driven through the Little Eastern Conservation Area, uh, past the Grade 1 listed church and the ponds, um, up towards the gardens of Eastern Lodge, and beyond up to the end at Brook End where the stables are. Um, you would obviously have seen this significant local opposition um, signs up, uh, to the uh, to the proposals, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've seen the topography of the area. You've seen where the um, the registered parks and gardens of Eastern Lodge are, um, and you would have driven past as I as I mentioned earlier um, over twenty at least in properties. So I would like to readdress the issue of coalescence that we didn't quite cover earlier on. Um, and I'd, I'd like to understand the council's view or encourage you to consider the issue of coalescence with Little Eastern, particularly in regard of that policy that I spoke about, SP6, um, to protect um, the community of Little Eastern as a community close to but not part of Eastern Park. At the moment, 
um, the proposals surround those leased-on properties. So coalescence is a real issue for us, particularly in view of the, the, the master plans that we're seeing coming out of the site proposers. Literally, uh, Eastern Parks, um, we had a long conversation with some of the other sites around the built heritage and the archaeology um, on the other sites. If we just look at the facts, as, um, as the, the great Dunmore representative was speaking about, Eastern Park, probably ahead of the other sites, has 11 built heritage assets within the site boundaries. And that's critical. That is within the site boundaries, not surrounding the site. There's another 170-odd Grade 2 listed buildings surrounding the site. And it has, obviously, the Eastern Lodge Registered Park and Garden within the site boundaries, four scheduled monuments, and the designated assets that have been referred to. Um, also worth mentioning the Eastern Conservation Area that butts right up against the edge of the site that you would have driven through on your site visit. I'd like to um, draw your attention to the development concept criteria map, which I'm, I think I saw you had open. It was the one that um, the lady from Historic England um, referred to. It's EC, EPCG 06. It's the one that Historic England pointed out um, around the areas of high sensitivity, um, medium sensitivity, and low sensitivity. Yep from the HIA. And as Historic England pointed out, that um, that's, the HIA shows a number of areas of pink, which is high sensitivity, yellow, which is medium sensitivity, and then I was interested to hear that the, uh, the area that says potential extent of least harm used to say potential development, but that's now been changed, so that's quite interesting. Um, and on that uh, concept criteria map, the areas of high sensitivity are detailed as being open land. That, now, that's, that's quite interesting because your question um, relates to the HIA and the developable area of the site. Um, now, if that is open land, which is what the HIA is saying, um, then I'm struggling to understand the master plans that I've seen, um, and I know they're not part of the examination, but they must be part of the calculation of the developable area of the site. Um, obviously, that has a, a huge impact on the developable area of the site. In the UDC hearing statement, I'm just trying to find the reference for you. Section 2.2 .2 of the UDC hearing statement, um, UDC have stated that there is likely to be potential for well-designed development within the area of medium sensitivity, and they've also stated some appropriately sensitive development in the high sensitivity area. And what I'd like to start to look at now is how they've reached those conclusions given the findings of their own evidence base. So 
So under the development concept criteria map, it says that the map needs to be read in conjunction with paragraph 8.6.10 of the HIA, which details potential mitigation measures for development within the site. And I'll just read you some of the bullets. There's a number of bullets in there. I won't go through the whole section. But it says that development should be restricted to the north of the site at the RPG, which Historic England have also pointed out, and as have Great Dunmo. And areas graded as medium sensitivity are buffers stroke transition zones between any development and Eastern Lodge RPG and the Little Eastern Conservation Area, i.e. they are buffers and not for development. Given that point, I'm struggling to understand how the UDC hearing statement can then go on to say that areas of high sensitivity stroke open land according to the development concept criteria map can have development on them in the north of the site and also how, they, how uh, development can be planned in the medium sensitive areas which are supposed to be buffers. So I, the way I'm reading this map in a similar way to historic England is that any development should be in that potential extent of least harm, the hashed area. And if that's the case, how can that not have an impact on the developable area of the land? The 2015 Landsec proposal was for the development of 10,000 homes. The developable area detailed in that proposal was 473 hectares. So that was four years ago. Since that point, UDC have engaged consultants, both landscape and heritage, to assess the heritage and landscape impacts of the proposed developments. The evidence states that only part of the site can accommodate development, and I mentioned this earlier, and I'd still be really interested to hear which part of the site has been defined as being able to accommodate development and which part of the site um, cannot accommodate development. Because if you look at the uh, landscape appraisal, it's a very similar map to the heritage impact assessment in terms of high-sensitive, medium-sensitive and low-sensitive areas. A significant site of the north of the site is of high sensitivity and should be open land, and buffers and transition zones must be incorporated into areas of medium sensitivity. With all of these constraints, the latest proposal confirms that for exactly the same site boundary, the developable area is still 473 hectares, and the site can still accommodate 10,000 homes. I'm struggling to understand how this is possible. The heritage impact assessment alone identifies a high sensitivity area of approximately 160 hectares with no development. It was interesting to note the comments from Miss Gooding from Braintree Council yesterday during the West of Braintree um, discussions when she was discussing the West of Braintree options within Braintree 
um, on the Braintree side, and I'll quote her exactly on this. Her quote was, Braintree Council excluded the land with the registered park and garden, obviously, was her exact terminology. Clearly, um, whilst it's obvious to Braintree Council to exclude um, registered park and gardens from the developable area of the site, it's not quite so obvious to U UDC. I'll go back to the point I raised a couple of days ago where one of the key criteria for the areas of search was to exclude registered parks and gardens. Um, UDC, I think what their response was that the registered park and garden wasn't as important as the one in the Saffron Warden site that was excluded. Um, what we've got is a situation where not only have they excluded the area from the areas of search because of the registered park and garden, but they've actually um, currently planning to surround that heritage asset with development, which is conflicting with the evidence base in the uh, heritage impact assessment. I suppose in summary what I'm saying is that both for the landscape and for the heritage, if you actually look at the evidence base and what is detailed in the landscape appraisal and the heritage impact assessment, it's clear that these, these pieces of evidence um, identify the north of the site as an area of high sensitivity. Um, it identifies a whole area of the site as medium sensitivity on which no, no development should take place. And therefore, um, the area which is recommended both by the Heritage Impact Assessment, Landscape Appraisal and Historic England um, are showing that the developable area of the site, in answer to your initial question, is a lot smaller than currently configured. Thank you. Mr Thompson, and then I'll ask the Council to, uh, to speak. Uh, just very quickly, I'd like to pick up on a couple of points made by Charmaine, which I think are of fundamental importance and tend to get overlooked. The first is that the three areas of the gardens, the conservation and eastern park are so often in all this huge mountain of paperwork seen as separate. They are not separate. They are all part of the Eastern Lodge estate and they have to be seen as one. Now it is true of course that since World War II they have gone into multiple ownership but from the point of view of the assessment that we are currently undergoing they've got to be seen as one. They all fit in together. Uh, the second is her point that the loss of the trees, though tragic and necessary in the context of World War II, um, in no way takes away from it the nature of the park. Now, having the good fortune to live in her house that was part of the Eastern Lodge estate until the 70s, and to have, which is immediately adjacent to the park and the conservation area, where my family and I have lived for the last 24 years, in my commuting years, I have walked the park every weekend for 20 years. Now that I walk from home, I walk it, if not every day, more, more often than not. I, I, I feel that 
I have a, 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 not a professional, but an exceptionally good knowledge of the nature of that park. And it is undoubtedly different from other land. And that only derives from the fact that it's been a park for 700 years. The loss of the trees is tragic, but it's not fundamental. And it is still very much a deer park. It's so often that you see the deer there, plus all the flora and the fauna, the orchids. The, the, the kites and the buzzards and the rest of it that is so widely appreciated by the many, many people who, who, who use it. So those are two points that I think are very important to bear in mind. With respect to the uh, Donald Insel um, HIA, um, you know, fine as it goes, but I think there are a couple of things, uh, omissions, which should fail to bring out the history properly. The first is that in the historical section, I'm talking about, about paragraph 8.37 or just before it, there is no reference to the fact that the Countess of Warwick in 1937 designated this as a natural reserve, a natural park. And that was done in quite a formal way. And that was the springboard to the agreement that was signed in uh, 1939 uh, between her executors, as she died in 38, and the Dunmo Rural Council, uh, which precludes the development. And that agreement, of course, is still extant. And uh, though uh, the Uttlesford Council think they can sidestep it, that is not necessarily the case. But it's not my position, uh, a proposal here to get into the arcane world of trust law, which I'm certainly not qualified to talk about. But the fact that it was designated as a natural park, and that was enshrined in an agreement which still is extant, I think is very important to the understanding of the background. The final point I'd make on the HIA is that it incorrectly states in uh, paragraph 8.38 that in April 1958 the aerodrome ceased to be required for military purposes, that was correct, and was sold for agricultural use. Well, it was not sold. It returned to the Maynard family. So it remained in the ownership of the Maynard family from, I think it was 1586, when Elizabeth I gave it to, until our friends at Land Securities bought it 10 years ago or whatever. So that, I think, is also important for the historical perspective. Thank you. Do you want to speak, Mr. Tideman, or Mr.? I mean, I think there's, there's various points. And there's elements about the. Um, I, I don't know if I can just come back on two specific points yeah. first and then defer to, to, to Ms. Tiedman. Um, and just to say, um, firstly, um, in relation to Ms. Max, a historic England, just because there's that reference to. Um, Mr. Bedford's comments about the use of concept diagrams. I just wanted to come back on that first. Um, <clears throat> the point that was made um, yesterday in relation to that is that, of course, heritage is an important topic as an environmental constraint, uh, but it's not the only factor, is the point that Mr. Bedford uh, was making, for large-scale development such as this. And um, you need, of course, a, um, an adequate evidence base to clearly justify um, a number of elements. So in historic um, environment, you might be looking at which areas are appropriate and inappropriate, but you'd look more widely and try and knit together a number of factors, is the point he made. Um, active travel routes, heritage, ecology, topography. Um, and so when he made the point that we don't have a sufficient evidence base for that, what he was saying is, at this stage, we don't have a sufficient evidence base with the level of detail required to fit all of those topics which is not, does not mean, oh, there's a real problem here for the local plan. We think 
yes, you can settle the principle of those matters through this local plan, what that then um, leaves is for those matters to be covered by the DPD. Um, so th I think you will have a note of what he said far more eloquently than I do, um, but that's the, that's the same point that's made. It's not quite about um, not having sufficient evidence for a, a concept diagram for um, the historic environment. Then just on one other specific matter for Ms Hawkins, Great Dunmo Town, um, Town Council, j j just because reference was made to paragraph 132 of the framework, um, where uh, comments were made about registered parks and gardens um, and significant impacts being wholly exceptional. I'd just ask you to reflect on, on the particular wording of 132, which talks about substantial harm um, to grade one and two star registered parks and gardens, uh, and, by the way, World Heritage Sites, being wholly exceptional. That, that's the level at which we're talking about um, wholly exceptional development, both in terms of the STARS ratings, but also in terms of substantial harm. It's not my understanding that the Heritage Impact Assessment identifies um, substantial harm to, to, to any of um, to, to registered parks and gardens in that way. So that's just two specific points. I don't know if then I'll draw on Ms. Teeth. Yeah, it'd be useful to hear about uh, from Ms. Tideman, but also maybe possibly from Mr. Miles about the capacity. So there's this big issue of the, the areas identified actually are sort of a, in similar areas in terms of highest impact from heritage and landscape impact and um, how, that me, how that fits with the capacity that you envisage. Okay. Um, if I could, um, if Athelsford could comment on the capacity of the site, but, but initially um, if I can just outline um, how we tackled the HIA and then respond to Ms. Hawkins and Mr. Dobson's and Mr. Thompson's points specifically on the HIA um, items. Um, so just to stress that the heritage impact assessment that Donald Insels carried out was um, based on an overview on a, on a based on a heritage assessment to identify um, the significance of historic assets on or outside the site, to comment on the contribution of the setting to their significance, and then to identify any a potential impact of change or of development. And this was um, to inform um, the, next, the next stage. So our assessment was based on a indicative site area. Um, we had no, um, we used no master plans in our assessment. Um, from our assessments, we uh, mapped a series of plans that we've discussed recently um, on sensitivity across the site, and then developed those into a development concept criteria plan, which sort of gives guidance to possible mitigation measures that may be adopted if it's considered that development um, takes place on the, on the site. So that was an, an outline, really. But just to answer specifically um, some of the points that were, were made, um, my colleague has um, commented on the um, MPPF reference to substantial loss. Our HIA doesn't um, come to the conclusion that there will be substantial loss in any of the... Um, 
heritage assets on, on or around the site. In fact, we um, assess it as less than substantial harm. Um, in terms of the deer park, the significance of the deer park, we acknowledge it's a non-designated heritage asset. We do acknowledge that it has a historic background, although we gave it the um, significance rating that we did because it's undergone um, a substantial amount of change from a, a deer park which appears on the 1777 Chapman and Andre map um, then changed to airfield use and then now, as Mr Thompson corrects me, but later on in agricultural use. Um, it has undergone a change, although we do acknowledge there is some historic relationship with the other gardens and the registered park and garden in the north of the site. For that reason, um, we have addressed it in our assessment and have come to the conclusion that there is still grounds for potential unburied archaeology on the site, and that's itemised in our, in our assessment. Um, that would, of course, be um, subject to a field evaluation under the MPPF 128 um, for any next stage development. Um, Our development concept criteria plan does acknowledge the presence of the earlier former deer park in the sense that we um, suggest that it could form a part of a, a development of a potential future master plan introducing the radial axes and routes that have been lost or may still exist on the site. We acknowledge also the historic relationship between Eastern Lodge and Stone Hall to the south. Um, yes, we acknowledge that we couldn't get access and we think it is possibly needs some further investigation. However, we have um, left, let put it into uh, an area of medium sensitivity and... Its historic relationship probably needs to be um, brought out in more, in more detail. In a, in a DPD. Um, we've, we've talked, I've talked about vistas and, vistas and views across the site. Um, going on to the Little Eastern Conservation Area. Now, we assessed the conservation area as a, as a whole, although we acknowledge that it contains a number of historic assets because of the impact of change on the, on the conservation area. Um, and that's why we, have, we, we acknowledge that it has a historic relationship with the Grade 2 listed RPG to the north. And for that reason, we have... We, consider it is important but it is separate from the development although it butts up to the indicative boundary that we, we were examining um, on the sensitivity map we have separated Little Eastern Conservation Area and we've, we've put it against an area of open land high sensitivity and of course that's part of the next stage of um, 
any development of a master plan. Um, I think that probably covers... Yes, I think I've covered the, the potential for buried archaeological assets and the site visits that we took as part of our assessment has also identified the extreme west of the site as an area of high sensitivity because of its um, potential for archaeology connected with the Roman villa. Um, I hope that clarifies our approach. Thank you. Thank you. That's helpful. Mr. Uh, thank you. Yes, I'd like to come back on two points. Um, first of those on uh, capacity and um, Mr. Dodsley noted in paragraph 2.2 of our matter statement um, uh, various points but yes, I'd, I'd like to take you to, to this, this, um, this paragraph and the paragraph before as well. Um, before, before I go through any detail, I'd like to, to correct one, one error that appears to have crept in there. Um, the final line of paragraph 2.1 refers to the area of the potential extent of least harm and the potential extent of medium sensitivity as being 305 hectares. The third row of the second paragraph refers to it as 350 hectares. Uh, the correct figure is the, the top figure, the 305 so that, that 5 and 0 has been transposed in, in paragraph 2.2, and that, that is incorrect. So the point I wanted to make um, here was that um, the Eastern Park Prospectus 2017, the, the master plan that, that Landsec developed before the one they, they currently have, indicated an area of built development of 287 hectares. Um, and you can see a reference there in the footnote. Um, and while that is larger than the area of uh, potential extent of least harm, it, it, is, it is within the area of uh, potential extent of least harm and potential extent of medium sensitivity. As Mr. Dodsley noted further down, um, the, the paragraph goes on to say that with appropriate mitigation, there's likely to be potential for well-designed built development within the areas identified as medium sensi sensitivity and for some appropriately sensitive development in the areas of high sensitivity. The, the reason the, the statement says that is, as Mr. Heidman says, said earlier, that the purpose of the, um, the HIA was to... Um, uh, provide an assessment, identify the significance of assets, comment on that significance and, and then be used to inform the next stage and is to guide possible mitigation. The, the, um, the methodology, which Mr. Tyden can speak on far greater detail than I can, um, didn't look at any master plan, assumed that development could go anywhere on, on the site um, and while it proposed potential mitigation, it didn't take into account mitigation. Um, so with good design and appropriate mitigation, there is potential for development to go in, in areas ident identified as medium sensitivity or potentially as high sensitivity. The second point I wanted to address was... Ah, Mr. Dodsley's point about um, 
coalescence and uh, the 20 properties in Little Eastern, which would potentially be affected by, um, well, affected, uh, more affected than um, other properties in Little Eastern. And to assist with that, I'm going to turn to Little Eastern uh, Parish Council's matter statement. Uh, and Appendix 1 in there, which, which Mr. Dodsley referred to. Um, I, I, I think I'm correct, and, and, and please correct me if I'm not, Mr. Lodsley, that the, the properties you're referring to are the, um, the, the, the nine properties indicated at being at Brookend, uh, the 14 properties at, at Eastern Lodge, and, and potentially the seven at Laundry Lane. I'm, that's a bit more than 20, but I think it's one, a combination of, of those properties. Um, the, the, and, he's, and Mr. Dodsley said... Um, well, I, I won't speak for Mr. Dodsley. He can, he can, he say it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, the point I wanted to make, the point I wanted, the point I wanted to make, was that uh, the main village of Little Eastern, um, you. Um, that those, those properties are some are removed from the main village of Little Eastern, which you can see up over here, and and the conservation area, which contains an, the the listed church, Grade One listed church, and a number of further properties. And these these properties are, while they are part of Little Eastern Parish, that they are not part of, of the village of Little Eastern. Do you want to say something else, Mr. Gillum? Very briefly, just that in our main mods, we've um, we've stated that um, it now reads positively respond to heritage assets and settings, including Eastern Lodge and Gardens, Little Eastern Conservation Area, and etc. etc. Can you just give me the number of that one, just for my note? Um, eleven, I've got it down as main modification eleven. Uh, no, no, we'd have to, um, we'd have to find that. We can find that for you. Okay, thanks. I've got them in a pile somewhere here, but um, Mr. Dodsley. Thank you. Um, in, it's interesting that we're getting into semantics between the words parish and village. Um, the current Landsex Master Plan and proposals for Park Road are that um, residents of Little Eastern Village or parish will need to get to the rest of the village will need to go through gated barriers. So for villagers or parishioners to get to each other from where they live at the moment to get into the village, to go to the pub 
they will have to go through two... Oh, some of them will have to go through four gates if they live up at Brook End. So that's four, four barriers to get to the rest of the village. And if that's not coalescence, I don't know what is. The policy says a village close to but separate from Eastern Park. So that, that would be my response to Mr Miles's comment. Um, and I don't, I don't accept that putting barriers on the road and making residents go through those barriers to get to the rest of the village is acceptable. Um, and they need a better solution than that. Um, in terms of... I just need to check my understanding on the uh, development concept criteria map. Um, does open land mean open land? I just appreciate um, probably the... Can, the I just, uh, can I just comment yes. on, on that? Um, that area of high sensitivity... Oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Um, open land. When we did the assessment of the RPG, we put it in an area of high sensitivity because we felt that it was its it was its um, place as an RPG, but also its relationship with the wider landscape that was important. So that is why we phrased it as a, uh, we mentioned it, the RPG has been in the context of open land. Now, I don't know what the master plan will develop, but it's seen in the context as, of a landscape rather than built development. And it's uh, not a recommendation from <laughs> you that that should be kept open. That's Yes, it is. The area above, the area of sensitivity above Park Road in order to understand the significance of the RPG, we think it should be seen in the context of open land, whatever that might be. It might be a country park. No, and, and I welcome those comments um, because that's how we've always seen it. Um, so if I'm reading this right, the open land stroke high sensitivity areas should be left as open land. That's what the guidance says because um, this is guidance to mitigation measures. And in the same light, I assume my reading of the yellow areas is correct, that they are transitional buffers between the areas of high sensitivity and the potential areas of least harm. So given that my understanding is correct, I still struggle to see why UDC continue to say we are happy to put development in those areas of high sensitivity and medium sensitivity. I, I just don't accept that because they're not following their own evidence base. Thank you. I think Mr. Miles is going to comment on that. I think Mr. Warren wants to... Thank you. Um, so it is for the council to translate those, those recommendations into policy. Um, that this... As Ms. Tyden said, this is a high-level concept criteria plan um, which is to guide possible mitigation. It contains recommendations in there, um, but, it, it, but with appropriate mitigation, development may be possible. It, yeah. It's not a differing opinion. I've just asked the heritage expert to confirm what open land means, 
and she's confirmed it, and what medium sensitivity means, and that's been confirmed as well. Absolutely, if, if UDC want to put, to translate this into policy, then the policy should be no development will take place in the areas of high sensitivity or medium sensitivity. I'm more than happy to see that policy put into the local plan. But don't do an assessment and then decide which bits you want to follow. Um, so I would encourage you as inspectors to, it's obviously your call, um, but from what I've seen and heard this afternoon, there should be a policy within the local plan that says the high impact assessment recommends open land. There should be a policy within the local plan to only develop in the areas of least harm. High sensitivity areas should be open land. Uh, medium sensitivity areas are buffers and transitions. Thank you. Mr. Warren, oh sorry, Mr. Gillam, is it a quick point? Yes. Um, these matters are addressed in our main mods. Um, under heritage assets, we've um, talked about or what we've said, maintaining views to St. Mary's Parish Church Tower, etc., etc. Maintain appropriate open spaces to the north of Park Road between the site and the Eastern Conservation Area to protect the setting of the heritage assets and then integrate such open space with appropriate development and what that means if you go to the end of that of the uh, the further modification talks about historic environment considerations including approaches to mitigation enhancement so that could be viewing corridors which we which would be an, an obvious form of mitigation um, considered in initial HIAs which is where we are now will be explored in more detail at the DPD stage in more detailed documents. Uh, and just to provide a reference for you, um, it is main modification 336. Mr Warren, I'll just let Mr Warren speak. Thank you, ma'am. Just, just um, um, for um, sh short points, um, just... Coming back to the beginning and the, and the difference, distinction between this site and um, other um, uh, sites, um, we've, it's been useful, I think, the discussion um, dwelling on quite a lot of detail um, of various areas of the Eastern Park site. Um, and that's, um, we, would, we would say, has illustrated this point about the uh, amount of detail that's already come forward in relation to the assets and how they might be protected at Eastern Park, which distinguishes it from, from other sites. And, and we, we are, um, for Landsec's part, um, very happy with the idea of a concept diagram, which I think uh, HE um, vigorously promotes through the process. Um, the master plan is obviously not that. It's an illustrative um, layout uh, illustrating the delivery of, of all of the units and other facilities and so on. Um, but it's uh, able to be used <clears throat> to create, if the council takes that suggestion on board, the kind of diagram I think that uh, Historic England um, promotes, and we would, we would support that. So that's a difference, obviously, between the current situation in the plan and, and how we say it might be. That's the first point. The second point, ma'am, is that um, Historic England's um, uh, concern about um, the potential inconsistency in the council's case. On, on the one hand, um, the promotion of the site for 10,000 units. On the other hand, saying it didn't have the evidence uh, at the moment to, to 
make various decisions. It's, it's an inconsistency or a, uh, an area, of, a grey area, if you like, that, that many of us have, have noted. Uh, I think the answer actually is the one that I've, I've already given, which is that um, the, the, the reality is that we, all stakeholders and the council in particular, do have a large amount of information already about Eastern Park. It would be possible to do a concept diagram and it would be possible um, using the insul work and other work to work up um, whatever parameters may be required uh, uh, now. Um, th thirdly, there isn't any uh, realistic doubt about the deliverability of 10,000 units on the site. And I say that with uh, confidence because there is a distinction which came out rather awkwardly, but it came out in that last exchange um, about the difference between advisory work and indeed the views of those from Donald Insull and the plan-making functions of the local authority. So advice from experts is not the same thing as striking a planning balance uh, and a pink area of assessment on a plan is not the same thing as an embargo against development in a local plan, plan-making balance, which has to be struck, bearing in mind the provisions of the MPPF. And, and in that connection, it's obviously right, if I may respectfully say, for the authority to stress that the green low sensitivity... I'm looking here, ma'am, at the EPGC05, that diagram, which is on page... Yikes, I'm not, sure it's, I'm not sure it's got a page number, but within the, um, the HIA, that's the one, yeah. Um, if you have that open at the same time as, as the Land Securities Master Plan, um, the, the current one that's in the evidence. So in, in the, that's the way, in Matter 8 Appendix 3, it, I hope you've got an A3 version somewhere, ma'am. Um, but I don't ask you to turn it up now, but I just hope you do, because <laughs> it's, uh, it's obviously a large-scale drawing. Um, you, you'll, you'll not be surprised to see um, a, a lot of correlation between the two, because in taking forward the latest iteration of that illustrative master plan, Landsec has taken on board uh, and, may, and reached its own conclusions about the Donald Insull work in the HIA. Uh, the vast majority of the units that are proposed are on the green low sensitivity areas. Uh, some of them, though, when you look carefully, these are, obviously this is at a huge scale, so gaps that are a millimetre or so on this A3 plan are 100 metres apart in real life. Um, you'll notice that what's been done is to cater for the yellow, the medium sensitivity parts, either by leaving them completely free of development, so the area around Stone Hall, for instance, uh, or... Um, by incorporating them in open space, so see either side of, of Park Road in, towards the, the northern part of the site. Um, but it's true to say that um, one has to take into account mitigation and reach a balanced view about whether to um, develop on some of the medium sensitivity uh, areas as identified, and that's what Mr Miles has underlined. And the same is absolutely true for the high-sensitivity pink areas because um, I think the main modification... Uh, leave appropriate open spaces, I think the word is, or the wording is, proposed to be. Um, you, you'll have seen the earlier version, I think, which some of the objectors are still maybe overly relying on of the illustrative master plan, with more development closer to the boundaries of the RPG, to the north of Park Road. Um, that, that isn't necessary in terms of delivering the number of units. 
the amount of mitigation that's already um, being considered in Landsex thinking is much, much more extensive with greater open areas around the boundaries and the setting of the RPG. And you'll have seen on your site visit there is quite a lot of planting, existing planting around that area. Uh, screening the RP, the internal aspects of the RPG from their surroundings. And so th that is why, um, A, you can have confidence in your judgment about delivery of the uh, evidence base that you've got in front of you illustrating the ability of the site to deliver 10,000 units. But also, B, when you're mulling over this question, as we all can ask you to, about um, DPD, enough evidence, etc., at the moment... This is, as with the example I went to earlier on in the, in the higher level discussion, this is exactly why uh, sufficient evidence already exists at the moment to be able to form a view that one could move to SPD or planning applications more speedily uh, and not go through a DPD process. Thank you. Thank you. Mr Dosley, have you got a different point to us? Yeah, just to come back on, um, I think it was Mr. Gillam raised the point about the main modifications. Um, the bits of the main modifications that he didn't mention were about being informed by appropriate heritage and, la heritage and landscape visual impacts. And the uh, main modification that says harm should be avoided in the first instance. They are... There are a lot of main modifications relating to heritage, um, and Mr. Gillam just picked a couple. I think I would encourage you to read all of them. Oh, and the second second point um, from the uh, from land securities, it doesn't say appropriate open spaces. It just says open spaces. Thank you, Ms. Hawkins. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to come back on a, a couple of points, particularly relating to Stone Hall. Um, what I can't uh, get my head around is how you can allocate um, medium sensitivity to a grade two star listed building where the presumption is that development occurs um, exceptionally. Um, when we've heard that they didn't have access to the site, so how can you possibly assess it anyway? So it does raise big questions about that allocation, I would suggest. Um, did, can I ask, Ms. Dosley very kindly reminded me, I was going to ask you a question about the site visit. Did you manage to get up near Stone Hall? Because you can sort of wander down to the five-bar gate and sort of peer across at it if you... Not from memory. We, we went along as far as the stable building that was talked about. So we were in the car, it was early evening um, so we drove right along Park Road as far as the lovely old um, quite a large complex of stable buildings brick, and then back out and we sort of drove around the general area of the roads and villages and saw all the signs <laughs> it's, 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 it, it's quite difficult to get to because you kind of have to go through the quarry to get no, to it so, to so the offer would be to actually sort of accompany you to there to actually have a flavour of Stone Hall as, as far as you can. So. Okay, that's not something we might do in a future visit. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to be absolutely clear that Historic England would still have concerns regarding development north of Park Road. Uh, we've made that clear all the way along. Um, and so... Uh, yeah, that's just to, to, to clarify that for you. And 
of course you know, but for the benefit of those who don't know, Historic England aren't just involved in the local plan process. We will be involved as a statutory consultee throughout. Thank you. Did you want to come back? I, to I just wanted to, I, I mean, obviously I appreciate that that's Historic England's position. On the other hand, I'm not reading that, I hope correctly, as Historic England on the basis of their site visit. Uh, form, uh, advising you that they have an objection in principle to development north of Park Road. A much finer-grained analysis needs to be undertaken in order to say whether or not any units would be acceptable north of Park Road, given topography, landscape and distance. So I hope I'm right about that. For Mrs Mack to, um, to say whether or not that's the case. I think on the basis of what we have seen from a site visit... Um, and from the, uh, the evidence base from Donald Insull, that is our view in heritage terms, and it will be for the decision makers to, to balance those different perspectives. I think that's answered your question. It is, and you, you've seen what we've said about that on the basis of our work. I, I, you know, a site visit is a site visit. Are there any others? Did you want to say something? No, I think you're struggling a bit. With... Sorry. No, it's nice. <laughs> Um, are there any other comments in terms of heritage or landscape? No. Did you want to say anything in particular, Ms. Gay? You've been sat there and... <laughs> I think it has, hasn't it? I'm just going to suggest we've still got a few questions to go through, whether we just have a, a brief five minutes just, if, just to have a comfort break. And if anybody, in terms of heritage, if, are we happy that people t in relation to heritage and landscape, if they want to go, can go? I'm just conscious of the time and... People have been here for quite a few days, some people, so, uh, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I'm happy for those people to, to leave if you want to leave. And we'll just have a, a brief break until quarter past five just to allow people to stretch the legs, and then we'll come back. And I think we've probably covered quite a lot of the ground we need to cover. So.
Okay, is everybody ready to um, continue? I'll just um, get rid of that document and find the agenda. Oh, there it is. <laughs> oh. Okay, so in terms of the agenda, um, we think we've dealt with heritage impact and the landscape, which are questions two and three. Question four, as far as I'm aware, Natural England said they weren't coming today. There's ongoing work in terms of statements of common ground, and I'm happy for you to leave. Uh, we don't need to go through it unless you particularly want to, Mr. Gillam. Just one brief factual point. Uh, main modification, NM36. Right. Just a factual. Yeah. Yes, I'll read through all those, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Um, yeah, the um, zone of influence for recreational impacts at Hatfield Forest, that's ongoing work that I'm happy to leave to you to, to deal with, and they've not come on that basis of, of Natural England. Um, in terms of the quarry, we've got um, additional... In Sorry. I wanted to speak on Hatfield Forest, if I might, but I'm quite happy to take it after. I mean, in some ways it comes after uh, uh, noise and, and, and flight impacts. But whenever you like. Um, but it's a, a fundamental point to me. Okay, that's, we'll take it now because we'll take okay. it in terms of... Right. Apologies, I'm slightly late coming back. Um, so, I believe... Curiously, this looks rather peripheral. You may think, oh, it's on the side. But actually, I believe it's absolutely fundamental. Uh, now, I've set out in our hearing statement why I think that. Uh, so I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, my focus is going to be on the submissions from Natural England National Trust in the examination documents and the ones Can that I just are, stop you there? I wonder yeah. if it's worth the council just doing some updates because there is some other work going on that might help in terms of some further modifications and things, I think, isn't there? Um, if they think they can help on that, then, then let, let them try. I will try. Um, so we have been uh, meeting with Natural England to um, uh, discuss their concerns about the impacts on Hatfield Forest. Um, the National Trust has uh, commissioned and the work has been complete looking at recreational impacts on the forest. Um, originally that looked at a... Um, a zone of influence based on a 75th percentile of people visiting the forest of around 10 kilometres, um, and that was based on winter visits. 
since then, the, the, work, the work has uh, further work has looked at some of visits, and that has identified a zone of influence of, of 15 kilometres. That, that covers um, the Eastern Park site. Further to that work, um, week before last, uh, a draft mitigation strategy was published by um, uh, Natural England in consultation with the National Trust, uh, and the Council um, has uh, agreed a statement of common ground with Natural England, which agrees various changes to, to the local plan, uh, and we've also committed to, to further work with uh, Natural England to ensure that the, dra the draft mitigation strategy is finalised and is appropriately taken into account within the local plan. Um, and that's where we are. I don't know if that's helped or added in some information to the knowledge you have. Um, I think uh, it makes a suitable basis from which to proceed. So what I am doing is picking up on the Natural England and the National Trust documents, and I'd like specifically ref to refer to ED9 and ED9C, And then to the uh, uh, National Trust document ED17, to which Mr. Miles has just referred, the mitigation strategy. So if we could start, please, with ED9. That, of course, sets out the, uh, the, a quick summary of the concern and um, also goes on to deal with the question of mitigation. Um, and if you look to uh, the page three of that Natural England letter, you will see mitigation is covered and it is split into strategic access management measures, SAMs, uh, uh, is that familiar terminology, and, uh, 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 and a SANGs, the Accessible Natural Green Space, as being two different ones. And it makes reference at the bottom of page three to the precedent set uh, in the uh, Thames Basin for eight hectares per thousand population of Sang. Um, if we can then move on to the uh, mitigation strategy to which Mr. Miles uh, referred, which obviously is a very comprehensive document, etc., uh, you will see from the introductory paragraph that that only deals with SAMs and not with SANGs. Now, taking that as a base, I'd just like you to refer you to page 2 of that ED17, uh, the paragraphs headed four, which is a description of Hatfield Forest, and particularly the last paragraph on that page, which says that Hatfield Forest is of supreme interest in that all the elements of a medieval forest survive, deer, cattle, etc., etc. As such, it is almost certainly unique in England and possibly in the world. Now, that is very, very strong terminology, or at least it is to me, the layman. 
I mean, unique in England and possibly in the world. It is possibly Europe. Um, I must say, I saw possibly Europe somewhere, but the text I've got in front of me says possibly in the world. Anyhow, it's important. As long as we, it's extremely important, and it is a primary responsible for Uttlesford, responsibility for Uttlesford District Council. Um, bum, 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 bum. If we could then flip back to ED9C and just look briefly at the zone of influence at the 14.6 kilometre, you will see that it covers not only Eastern Park, but also Harlow, Bishop Stortford, Sawbridgeworth, Great Dunmow, Takeley. It is a very large area. Um, turning back to ED17, if I may, I'd like to refer you to one or two paragraphs because I think the wording is important. Um, Paragraph 13 states that a 29% increase in housing, some 29,345 new dwellings, is based on the allocations within a 15 million radius of Hatfield Forest. Housing development in the UDC plan will lead to an 18% increase in total housing within 5 kilometres of the forest, and 30%, a 36% increase within 10 kilometres. Going on to paragraph 14, indicates such development will lead to an increase in visitors' numbers to Hatfield Forest of 22% over the next 10 to 20 years, with the great majority, some 64%, from the Uttlesford district area. See paragraphs 20, 21, and table 2. Paragraph 25, it is therefore essential that local authorities provide suitable alternative natural green space, SANGs, for all larger new developments, rather than implicitly or explicitly allowing any further reliance on the presence of Hatfield Forest. Um, that is the nature of the problem that we face. And it's not a problem that just relates to Eastern Park. It is a problem that relates to the very extensive building that has gone on, particularly in the great Dunmo takeley canfield area, in recent years. And the 3,000 houses that are allocated under the plan to great Dunmo, and the 700 allocated uh, to, to Takeley and Canfield. Um, I would suggest that the council already has a significant responsibility in terms of SANGs on the basis of those houses, let alone Eastern Park. Turning to Eastern Park with 10,000 uh, 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 10, houses, two and a half per dwelling, uh, we're talking about 25,000 people there. Um, over time, uh, the uh, number of hectares required to mitigate for that alone, leaving aside Dunmo and Takeley, is very significant. Now, I accept that land securities have talked rather loosely about throwing in some spare fields in order to make a, a, a community park. Um, I would suggest that that area, which I know very well, um, has no comparison to the park that we would destroy by uh, allocating uh, Eastern Park under SP6. There is, the, there is just no character in terms, uh, no, no comparison in terms of the flora and the fauna, the wildlife and all the other elements that are, are important to us. 
So I, at that point, I'd just like to step back, if I may, and put this point into context. Uh, the point is obvious that I'm making, but the context, I think, is more complex. Um, we have a plan here based, uh, based on three new towns in the district of Uttlesford. A cursory look at any map of Uttlesford leads one to see that it is a very difficult place to find suitable places for new towns. It is limited by the transport uh, infrastructure, which runs north-south on the west side and the A120 on the south side. The rest of it is rolling rural topography, which is totally unsuited for new towns. So we therefore have a problem. Um, there is, it is compounded by the fact that the only sensible place I can actually see from my knowledge of the area to put a new town would be in Carver Barracks. And as discussed, that has been ignored for reasons that I do not understand. I do understand that it wouldn't supply buildings in this period, but for any plan not to look beyond that seems to me to lack credibility. Now, thinking of the work that we've done in previous days, we started off looking at the sustainability appraisal. Uh, and that the rather curious evolution of that um, uh, and the fact that the consultation... Sorry, just stop it. We don't want to go back over the whole no, strategy I'm, of the plan. I'm not going to do it, no. but the sustainability appraisal I noted at the time uh, um, um, the, um, lacked credibility uh, and... Uh, um, it seemed to me that it had been deliberately contrived to fit this plan of the three towns. Um, we then go on, we look at the 14,000 figures, which is worth noting at two and a half per dwelling, means an increase in 15 years of 40% in the population of Uttlesford. We then go on and we find that there are endless parties saying there are all sorts of other locations where we could build and uh, where we should build, etc etc and then we go on to yesterday and we start looking at North Uttlesford and the risk to trajectory is raised and the further criticism of the site selection through the site selection process and the 500,000 threshold and call for sites. So in that context, looking to the responsibilities that lie on the shoulders of Uttlesford with respect to Harris um, Hatfield Forest, one has to consider whether the best solution wouldn't be to abandon Eastern Park, as suggested by two members of the National Trust uh, Committee for Hatfield Forest in the Reg 19 submissions, which you will have from the chairman, one, and from Richard Buxton, the other. The best way to protect Hatfield Forest would be to allow for an alternative large open space, namely Eastern Park. Um, we've heard today with respect to Eastern Park's criticisms with respect to its allocation from the point of view of heritage, access, transport, landscape, etc. And we will hear further with respect to noise, pollution, the health of the inhabitants, etc. In short, Standing back from this huge mountain of data that has put before us, if you look at Eastern Park, it is surely too close to an airport to make sense, too close to Dunmo to make sense, 
too close to Little Easton to make sense, and with an access which is highly limited. At the same time, we would destroy an asset which is of huge importance in Uttlesford. It is one of the only two socio-economic groups, along with Audley End. Uh, it is of huge importance historically. It is of huge importance to the physical and mental well-being of the people who come after us. And I would here refer to the fact that the great parks of London, their great differentiation from the other metropolises of the world, they were reserved for the public 500 years ago. So I would say that Uttlesford should recognise its responsibilities towards Hatfield Forest, should recognise that they would be best discharged by reserving Eastern Park against any planning at all, and that SP6 should be withdrawn from the plan. Thank you. Do you want to come back on that at all? I know that... Very briefly. Yeah. Um, only to say we do reckon the council does recognise its responsibilities towards Hatfield Forest and we are working through uh, with Natural England the, the appropriate body to identify an appropriate mitigation strategy and, and wording to include in the plan. Thank you. Does anybody want to say anything else on that? Mr Andrew, is this something you've covered in your Reg 19 statement? And to, to a more updated extent in the... Um submission to your, your questions. I just want to draw your attention because I can't underline the, uh, the risk enough that um, alternative natural green space and access for public is, uh, is a significant concern from an aerodrome safeguarding perspective. What tends to happen is that open green space in itself or planted up green space attracts birds. You put people into that with cafes and litter and food, it attracts even more birds and that is a significant risk for aerodromes. Beyond that, it's not just Hatfield Forest and not just the consequence of, um, of the allocation that Eastern Park we're discussing. The risk to the airport is kilometres wide in the circumference. So Gilston Park out in Harlow causes us concerns and the, and the, the whole you know, development of this part of West Essex is, is a significant risk. I just wanted to underline that point because it's not as simple as just assuming that we can plop a new open green space somewhere and everything will be fine. It's not that not that simple. Yeah, I, I suggest probably the best course of action is probably to work with Natural England, which hopefully you are on the council in terms of that because it's obviously a wider problem than Eastern Park, isn't it? It's, uh... it, it absolutely is, and, and, and that's absolutely you know from far as we're concerned our, our commitment to do that because it's not a case of black and white and saying you can't do it you can do it it's not as simple as that but equally i wouldn't want you as inspectors to, to be under the misapprehension that there is a ready-made solution that can just be brought out of the box mr thomas again just like to say that i find find it hard that a airport would have a bigger problem with birds because it's reserved as a green area than a development uh, full of rubbish bins and litter and this that and the other i thought that would attract far more birds and cause them far greater problem the next point on the agenda is about the um will the working quarry on the site affect the rate of delivery of development and we have quite a lot of um, additional information on that i'm happy to take it as read unless anybody particularly wants to say anything on that so there's a statement of common ground and things in there and there's a statement of common ground between landsec and county council as the minerals authority yes um, the next point on the agenda is about um, 
Sorry, I didn't see you there, Mr. Uh, apologies. Um, it's just a very brief point that the Town Council has in relation to um, the quarry and also the delivery of development sitting alongside that and the timing uh, of that. Uh, and, and we appreciate there's obviously statements of common ground that have been agreed subsequently. Uh, I haven't seen those, but I'm under I, you know, I understand what roughly has been agreed as, as part of that. But I think the comment that, that the Town Council has is that in terms of the, the quarry is likely to be in place and extraction is likely to continue as we understand it, um, certainly through the, the life of, of this planned period that we're talking about now. Um, the early phase of development as we see it, as where it would go from Eastern Park, as we've sort of put in, in our Reg 19 reps in, in one of the plans we prepared there, which I'm sure you've seen, um, shows the first phase being predominantly towards the northwest of the GC up there. Um, for obvious reasons, because that, that's got to be away from, from where the quarry is whilst that extraction is taking place, uh, and also an area that, that clearly has to avoid other constraints as well. And again, it goes back to the point of deliverability and it goes back in terms of establishing a new community. Because of the constraints of where the quarry is, your first phase of development is in the most unsustainable location in terms of access and connecti connectivity to the A120, as we'll come, out, come on to with where the proposed employment site is. Um, reliance on, on facilities and services from Dunmo and other settlements are going to be needed in the early phases of development before new facilities and services have been established in that, that settlement. And again, it, it's sort of a matter that, that, that thought needs to be given in terms of actually if this community is going to be based on, on those principles that, that, that have been advocated, is actually whether the phasing is being done in the right way to ensure the best chance of success. And again, going back to the points about modal shift and getting people out of using the car, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive that you're putting the first phase and all the bulk of the first lot of housing in, in the location that's most remote from accessing um, where the buses will go, you know, to get people out of using the car from, from, from the word go, really. So, again, I'm sure this will be a factor for the future DPD, but it's also a point that does need considering now in the context of where the quarry sits and the lifespan of that and how realistic it is for the development moving forward is the point we would have on that. Thank you. I understand what you're saying. Does anybody want to make any comment on that? No. This point is about um, whether the plan should identify specific allocation areas within the policy area for employment use. And, and there's been some updates since I wrote that question because we've now got figures um, for employment, although no specific areas defined. That you said will be for a, a future DPD. Mr. Thompson, do you want to comment on that particular question? No, right, so that was still from before. Um, seven uh, deals with the sports strategy and. Um, since I wrote the question, there's been an update on that as a fairly recent sports strategy, which we've referred to in previous sessions, um, and that's um, reflected in the latest infrastructure delivery plan things as well. Does anybody want to make any particular comment on that? No, and that will be obviously taken into account in the master planning and the DPDs. The final point, which I think probably everybody's waiting for, is the, um, have the how have any impacts from flight paths to and from Stansted Airport on the Eastern Park proposed garden community being considered? 
um, and we had a discussion yesterday on this when we talked about West of Braintree. Um, I suspect it's probably going to be a fairly similar discussion, but we've obviously got different people here potentially, so we need to, um, to cover those points again. Do you want to say anything in advance, Mr Pine? Thank you, ma'am. Yes, my name's Jeremy Pine, Senior Planning Officer with Uttlesford Council. As you point out, we did go through a lot of these points yesterday, and um, in the Council's hearing statement uh, under Question 8, we did discuss the policy aspects that the Council considered in, in paragraphs 8.1 and 8.2, and the metrics, contours and flight track data that the Council considered in paragraphs 8.3 and paragraph 8.4. And then there was a general discussion about the current uncertainty regarding the airspace change process that is being undertaken now, which will result in um, consultation probably towards the end of next year with implementation over the south of the country sometime around about 2024. And I think we, we, we discussed that really nobody knows at this stage what the outcome of that process will be. So all we can really do now is work on what we do know. I think at this stage I would just like to add one further point in that because of the location of uh, Eastern Garden Community, clearly the noise signature from Stansted Airport would be more significant than for either west of Braintree or North Uttlesford. And for that reason, if you look in the policy SP6, there is at uh, criteria 27, and that's on page 47, um, a requirement to provide acceptable mitigation of environmental and health impacts, including noise from Stansted Airport. Master planning of the site will consider noise as a factor that will inform the development and buildings impacted by noise will be designed in such a way as to mitigate these impacts. So my view on that is that there's obviously some work to do between now and the um, drawing up of Eastern Park to make sure that uh, known effects from Stansted Airport are taken into account at the master planning stage. I think really that's all I can possibly say at this stage now. Is the Council's view that none of those are insurmountable? <coughs> that's the view, yes. Speak, Mr. Dodsley. Uh, thank you. Just a very brief point. Um, historically, as a nation, um, our major airports have been established over many years with Heathrow and Gatwick, um, and the sighting of residential properties around those airports has grown up over time. Um, it's inconceivable to me that knowing what we know now why anybody would want to sit down and make a proactive choice to put new residential housing next to an airport and a major air expanding airport at that. We've learned so much over the last 50 years about the negative impacts of um, airport noise, environmental issues. Why anyone would sit down and plan to put 10,000 houses close to a major airport is just beyond me. That's all. Thank you. Did you want to speak at all, Mr. Andrew? Are you happy you've said... I won't repeat what I said yesterday in terms of um, um, 
sort of airspace process or, or, or indeed um, about the uh, uh, legal uh, position around the NPRs and so forth. I'll leave that as said. Um, but um, one point perhaps uh, is worth just as a, again, just, just purely as a matter of fact without any conjecture or any um, suppositions to me what, uh, what may come with airspace change. The, um, the noise preferential route that uh, is set over Eastern Park um, is, with, with all reasonable knowledge of airline um, capabilities, already on a very tight turn from the airport. So it's unlikely, even with airspace design and, and airspace change, to be capable of coming any closer to the airport. You've got to physically still got to turn an aircraft as it's taking off. It doesn't turn any quicker than it, it physically can. So you, you're, in a future world, you're probably always going to have um, the prospect of a corridor being in that location if it's going to be used in the future. You know, it, that, and that's always going to be the question. If it's going to be used, how much it's going to be used, we don't know. We haven't gone through that process. But whereas you could see other routes move, potentially in airspace design, that's that's on quite a tight turn. So there's a logistic issue around that. Um, and yeah, So uh, that's all I'll say. It's, um, it, it is what it is in terms of physical mobility for aircraft turn. Thank you. Mr Warren, you want yeah, to... Yeah, ma'am, all I was going to do was draw your attention, kind of supplementary to the point that's just been made, to our paragraph 1.29 in our matter statement for today. Um, we, uh, it's really just to pick up and distinguish... Um, the debate that we had yesterday about flights um, or noise preferential routes over west of Braintree. This is rather different at Eastern Park because, is it 04 Clacton? The, the, the one that goes over west of Braintree. Yeah. The, this um, uh, site, the Eastern Park site, at the moment has an average of just over one, one and a quarter flights a day over it because I think partly because of the geometry of getting flights in and out. It's just not the same kind of route as the main O4 route that was referred to yesterday. Can I just yes. clarify a point? I'm on, still there. Yeah. Uh, clarify a point on that. The, the, the utilisation of that route is a, uh, currently as a consequence of airspace change uh, that happened uh, a few years ago, um, and that is due to the congestion in central London um, of overflying aircraft. So, in, in real simple layman's terms, aircraft that need to travel south, um, having taken off in a northerly direction you know, with the with the wind, um, travel out to Clacton, go eastwards, and then turn south um, once they reach the sea in effect. So the airspace change question to answer in the future, and again, I say this just purely as a question, I really must stress I'm not making any judgment whatsoever on it, is if the airspace change for the whole south of England is, is going to be reconsidered, no one can predict what utilisation would, would occur in the future at this point, and, that, and, that, and that's just a, an open point. Yeah. Thank you, and uh, conscious of the time, um, I'll try and be as short as possible. And I apologise, I didn't listen to the discussions yesterday on flight paths and things, so bear with me. Um, picking up a couple of things just mentioned, um, Jeremy Pines mentioned um, LAMP2, that's the next airspace, major airspace change in the whole of southeast of England. And I agree with everything he said in terms of timing and timescales, and that's a huge unknown. Um, 
I'll come on to utilisation in a minute, but what I'll try and do is say in the Regulation 1819 particularly and the response to the sustainability appraisal, there's a lot of detail in there <clears throat> about noise, aircraft noise, both ground noise that was mentioned earlier by, I think Roger Harbour was saying there's ground noise and air noise as well. Um, so I won't try and address that now in terms of all the detail. I'll try and put it into context of what it all means. And, and, and really, to, to point out some safeguards that I think you need to know. Um, as has been clearly obviously said, the Eastern Park proposed development is very close to the airfield. That top uh, northwest corner is one kilometre away from the perimeter fence. And phase one, if I remember correctly, is about one and a half kilometres away. That's very, very close, and as was said earlier. Um, the, the closeness means that it'll be affected by clearly air, aircraft in flight, but equally the ground noise depending on, on the weather conditions. And so if you get downwind, um, and ground noise is aircraft manoeuvring on the ground, as well as, of course, uh, uh, traffic associated with that. And if you get, in certain uh, weather conditions, such as inverse temperature gradients, you get noise, as well as pollution, um, clamped down on the ground. And, of course, if you've got downwind, then that noise is elevated. And the normal rule of thumb of noise downwind is it can elevate it another 10 dBs. That's double the loudness. So it's close enough to the airport. You can hear ground noise. And if you're downwind of it, if you're upwind of it, it's good because it'll reduce it. But if you're downwind of it, it increases it. So all, these are all the things in the context of trying to put something very close to where planes are taking off. As has been mentioned, there are two departure routes. They're known as NPRs. <clears throat> they're established in consultation and then agreed um, by, uh, by government, by TRT. And the, and the change in... Um, from one route to the other to the Clacton route was mentioned. However, at the moment, the Detling route, which is the one that hangs a, a right straight away and a really hard turn, <coughs> that's still used at night. And in the course of the day, it's been mentioned there are about two flights. Well, the average, that's, that's the average. On the Clacton route, last year... <clears throat> It was either zero departures if they were flying off the other way or 185 in a day. Now, that's a lot of departures. Again, depends whether you talk actuals or averages. So that's a lot of departures. What people tend to do when you're looking at noise is do what I think you've probably been shown is you look at a map, two-dimensional map, and you look at a line on it, which is the SIP. That's the standard instrument departure route. That's the NPR. And you say, right, which side of that are we? What that ignores is that people don't... When people hear noise, aircraft noise in the sky, they perceive it, first of all, its level. Secondly, it's, its characteristics, that's tonal content and things like that, and so on. And then the numbers. And the Civil Aviation has helped us in this because... Um, some work was done in ANMAC a little while back, which is trying to establish what constitutes overhead. Now, this is going to be important later because satellite navigation is bringing in what's known as PBN, um, performance-based 
navigation, and that means aircraft, and this is probably some of the things that you've probably heard from people out at Stansted and, and, uh, and that way, that's going to be much more accurate flights. So the CA has done some work to say you're standing on the ground and there's a flight path somewhere up there. What constitutes overhead? In other words, what constitutes how far away an aircraft has to be from the overhead position for you actually to notice it's less noisy? And the, and the answer stems from what's known as the three decibel measure <coughs> of a change of three decibels is the minimum perceptible in normal conditions. And it ends up with a cone above you. And the, the CAA figure for that is 48.5 degrees. So you say roughly that cone. So any aircraft flying through that cone, like for light, like for light heights, will sound as loud if it's out there or if it's out there, if it's overhead. So when you're looking at maps for flight paths, you have to remember that because all the flight paths will show you is the radar tracks of the aircraft. What you have to consider when you're going to look at <coughs> protecting people against noise is what's the actual figures that, that you will get on the ground. In the Regulation 19, we, uh, we studied four situations. One is the, was the 2017, which is about 25 million um, and 180,000 flights a year, then we looked at 35 million. Then we looked at the 43, which is the one which was he mentioned a number of times. And I, I want you to bear in mind, too, that the 43 million passengers is not the maximum capacity of that runway when the works have been done, if they're done for rapid <coughs> taxiway entry and exits. And we have there's data from Department of Transport. It's all in the Gatwick current uh, airport development plan that says they can handle with that type of uh, runway much more than 50 million passengers. So again, bear in mind that 43 million isn't necessarily the, the, the end result. So if you're looking to the future and you're looking to 2050, something like that, these sort of numbers you need to bear in mind. Right. Um, I'll jump ahead quickly, conscious of time. There are a number of impacts. First of all, there's noise, annoyance, and then there's sleep disturbance at night. And, and then thirdly, of course, there is the health impacts. And we were going to have Professor Banabala, who's a professor of, um, of virology, clinical virology at King's, to talk to you a little about um, the health impacts. Um, because we've rescheduled this meeting, unfortunately can't make it a day, so if that's all, if that's all right with you, I will leave you his paper, which studies the whole impacts of, on, on health. If you can submit that through the programme office, sir. May, if I may do that, ma'am, I'll, I'll, I'll do that, yes. So I'll leave that to one side, other than to say that, just as a sort of little snapshot, there are, as the health issues have now been quite well recognised, and I'll come on to WHO, and there's a lot of literature now about health and sleep disturbance. And there's, there's, there's also been a lot of literature about the other impact, which is the educational impacts on children in schools. And I understand that, that um, as part of the proposed 
Eastern Park, there's going to be uh, planning to have six schools. So, again, there have been some very, very detailed studies um, and longitudinal studies as well. The best known is the Ranch Project, which is which was uh, a huge study of the impact on, on primary school children's education for, for road and aircraft noise. So if you're living near an airport, the ranch study is, 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 is almost uh, uh, um, uh, defined reading. Just to give you some example, um, they decided that it, the ranch, they, they, they looked at noise exposure on primary school children's cognition. Cognition and, 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 and found a near linear exposure effect of the relationship between aircraft noise and exposure of school uh, children's reading comprehension. And it was estimated that a five decibel increase associated with a two month impairment in reading comprehension in, U in the UK. And I've been around Heathrow to see the impacts around there in the, in the junior schools um, around there and they have this thing called jet pause which is when a plane goes across the top um, there's a jet pause for about 30 seconds where it's almost impossible to teach and the, the, all of this becomes cumulative in terms of the, the effect it has on school children at school but I won't say any more about that because that's covered in in uh, Professor Jango's paper. If I can take you back, and it was mentioned, I think, um, at some point on yesterday, to the original um, Generation One <coughs> public inquiry in two, 2007. The inspector wrote in his report, this was the expansion to 35 million, I have concluded that additional air noise and to a lesser extent ground noise would be harmful to the living conditions and health of residents and to the quality of life in the area. Now, it's true that the government uh, agreed in the end, when it went to public inquiry uh, and, and, and after appeal, that they would grant the expansion to 35 million. But I'm, the point I'm making is the government accepted that inspector's report. And I think that will be very much the case were Eastern Park to be developed as a housing site. That ignores, of course, in the long term, in the, the uh, Airports Commission recommendation that by the time of 2040 or so, there will be a need for another, another runway in the southeast. And there's no question, Stansard will be on that list. If you look back to when that the Generation 2 proposal was put in by BAA um, in, uh, in 2008. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, 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 it was withdrawn in 2010, it's true. But that runway was to the northeast of the current one, so that would be slap bang across this site. My biggest concern, I suppose, is, and it's been voiced on other matters, is... There isn't the information on noise. There isn't adequate information, that's what I fear, to make, be able to make an assessment. So when I look through particularly the, um, the sustainability assessment, 
that no measurements have been taken. So no noise measurement has been taken to aircraft noise at all. And so my question is, how can you possibly make any assessment if you haven't done any noise measurements? A little while back, there were, there were background noise measurements taken. Um, and, and so, but they're historic now, but those sorts of figures are important as well. But fundamentally, it's very difficult to make an assessment of aircraft noise if you haven't actually measured it with, with monitors. In the absence of that, um, Great Dunmore Town Council commissioned to do a noise survey, and you'll see in, in the evidence put in in the Regulation 19 and in the SA response that there were two monitors, one at Deer, Deer Park, one at Church Cottage, I think. So you may have seen those two sites. And those results are all reported. And those results say, now bear in mind, it's just taking the noise of aircraft and um, um, what's called community noise, all the other forms of noise as well, cars, church bells ringing, the whole thing. So, but nonetheless, those figures on that quick snapshot in August um, 2018 show, 2017, show that the, the, the figures during the day, of an 16-hour day, day uh, excuse me, exceed WHO recommendations and they also exceed the current lowest observable adverse equivalent level of noise and since the CAA is now reduced by 3 dBs the level for significant noise it, it exceeds that as well so that's just a pointer that says I think you should do we should do some monitoring. Plus, I mentioned WHO. They published their guidelines in, uh, in 1999 first, and those have taken some time to be revised, but they were finally revised and published uh, last year, October last year, 10th of October. And that was very significant because what they've done in WHO is they've set source-specific guidelines. So they've set source-specific guidelines for aviation, for road, for rail, wind turbines, and leisure. And that's, that's a change, because if you remember, mostly we used the, 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 the 57 or 55, if it's LDN, as being, as being covering most uh, applications. And what they've done is they've significantly lowered the noise thresholds for aviation. So whereas before they were using a, a metric known as LDEN, it was set at 55, that's now down to 45. That's 10 decibel reduction. That's huge. That's halving the noise, the noise intensity. And the nighttime one has come down as well to, to match that. And it's significant because they've also re reduced... Um, the, the values for road and rail transport. But, but, but they've reduced it for aircraft more than they've done for the others. So that gives you some idea that clearly there's more sensitivity and more people are more sensitive to aircraft noise than they used to be. And from the health end impacts, that's a more significant problem.
If I look for evidence, I went into the SA report. Got, sorry. sorry to interrupt. Have you got a lot more to say? I'm just conscious that the council have got some information about noise contours and right. things. I just want to say two more things. So I'm looking for evidence of noise. If I look into the, the SA report, it's, it, uh, it, it may be timing, it may be t but they were using what's known as a, um, a, a noise action plan, which was published in 2009 as a draft for... And they were using, they were relying on that for noise information. Well, two things have happened since then. First of all, that action plan has been put into, into use. Secondly, we've had another noise action plan already consulted upon, and this year has been approved by the Secretary of State. What you'll notice there, so I would like to see them use the latest information, but what you'll notice when you study that, and again, it's, 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 I've given you the, the details in the report, is that between the last one and this one, the noise has increased. And that now has ramifications in my view because in the case of um, policy SP11, which I know went into great detail yesterday, one of the, one, one of the policy says proposal for airport development will only be supported where they achieve further noise reduction or no increase in day or night time noise in accordance with the airport's most recent airport noise action plan. Well, the most recent noise action plan from the airport actually shows an increase in both night noise and day noise. So there are lots of little warning signals to me that says we need more information. It's very difficult to assess all this without sufficient uh, evidence to say what the noise factor is. One of the things about aircraft taking off, because this is the route we're under here, is that, of course, they've got maximum, first of all, their maximum weight on takeoff, so the maximum power, and they are very, very noisy. And like for like, taking, aircraft taking off are much more uh, noisier than aircraft landing. That's a big generalization, I know. But then you get into the, the, the characteristics of that, what you find is, is that on takeoff with full throttle, you've got a very, very large low frequency content in that engine noise. And low, low frequency noise characteristics travels farther, they're more penetrating to buildings, they're more irritating because of that, and sometimes there's, there's vibrations associated with it. But the significant thing is, is that when it's measured normally, and this is standard practice, Sorry, can I just I'm just conscious of the time. Can I just say, if anybody wants to go, I won't be offended. Right. I know no people, I. <laughs> but I know people have commitments beyond this childcare, caring responsibilities, or whatever. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to make that point. If, if you want to go, then so I'll I, I, I try, I try and keep out of the detail, but that. That says when you're, when you're doing a noise analysis, you need to look at all of that aspect, all of the metrics you're using, all of the measurement techniques, all the weighting techniques, so it truly is representing what a person would hear on the ground. I mentioned WHO, and I think that, I would say, together with an audit action plan, and the fact that we discussed yesterday the Green Paper, and, and I accept the fact that it's all about timing, but in that green paper, it's quite clearly they're going to reduce the, 
significant level of annoyance by three decibels because that's already been published. Um, that'll get wrapped up into that. The fact that rather than average noise levels and contours, which was the classic method before, they're now looking at the frequency of events as being just as important as the average noise levels. So all of that is new, new material coming out, and I don't see any of that in this current application at all. So my, my message is twofold. One is we need more data to make a proper assessment, and then there's been, I, I suspect, material changes for developments out of the Green Paper and the WHO paper. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Peachy. Do the council want to respond? Or? Uh, You've obviously got lots of information in your, in your yes, statement, so, haven't you? But if you want to... So our matter statement sets out uh, our response into, to the question set to us, which was how have impacts from flight paths to and from Sunset Airport on Eastern Park have... How have any impacts from flight paths to and from Stansted Airport on the Eastern Park proposed garden community been considered? Uh, I'll ask Mr Pine to, to respond on that briefly, but before, before he does, um, I, I want to note that Mr Peachy made reference to the sustainability appraisal which we dealt with in, in the first week, so I'm not going to go into that in, in any detail other than to note that one of the sustainability objectives is to reduce and control pollution, and it does uh, note as one of the issues ambient noise levels around Stansted Airport and major roads on page 7. Thank you, ma'am. I'm not going to say a great deal, because obviously Mr Peach has provided a lot of very relevant detail. What I would say is that what he has said, I think, emphasises how important paragraph 27 of this particular policy is. And I certainly would agree that there's a lot of work to do in drawing up the plans for this garden community to make sure that the implications of noise, pollution, on the health of people who would live, live work and recreate here are taken into account. Obviously, people will have a choice about whether they, they wish to move to a Little Eastern garden community. Um, when you talk about impacts on health, there are obviously negative impacts, such as the effect of noise and pollution, but there are also positive impacts that people might derive from sort of being close to an airport, whereby they get the air connectivity, they get the benefit of uh, connectivity and surface access, employment, things like that. So these things, at the end of the day, are... A balancing issue and of course one thing about air noise is it's there all the time when an airport is working so if you and your colleague have visited the site obviously you will have some appreciation of the background level of noise and how intrusive or not you feel aircraft are when they pass overhead so I think really that's what I want to say at this stage thank you does anybody want to add anything in terms of aircraft I, th I think I would just, just sort of say that some, some of the points that have, that have been raised um, are overplayed. Um, some of them are, uh, are indeed true. Um, but um, between the evidence that the Council put forward um, and the reference in particular to um, the flight data maps that is in the Council's uh, statement, 
um, which links to data on our website. Um, plus, um, plus also the um, um, particularly the contours supplied in the uh, planning application, I think, really give you all the information you need to know. I think the only other point that has been raised that um, hasn't been touched on before in any discussion is that of ground noise. And I'd just, again, point you to the fact that ground noise is part and was part of the environmental statement as well and is taken into account. And it really doesn't extend um, any further than the air noise contours. So. But those are all visible in the um, environmental statements, so you can uh, take a look at those for yourselves. Thank you. And, and measuring air noise presumably is quite a specialist field. It goes beyond, I think there was obviously some noise assessment, and I think it was recognised that that also picked up all sorts of other noise. So it, it is quite a specialist field. In itself. It, it, it is, it is, and um, we could, I could probably take you up through to 10 o'clock if you really wanted to, um, um, so um, strap in, um, <laughs> but no, I think, yes, it is, it is absolutely um, um, a specialist subject, and, and so much so that certainly, again, for the London airports and stances, one of those, we, um, we, our noise model is held by the CAA. So those contours that are produced, and again, it is set out in, um, in the council statement, the contours that are produced are, are done by the CAA, the, what's called the ERCD, uh, and they use a, the, the ANCOM model, which um, three acronyms that you left, right, and centre here. But that is a prescribed noise model, takes into account a whole load of a variety of factors, terrain, you know, the like as well. Um, so, uh, noise does sometimes that you can take out other noise yeah. so that you just get the pure. Absolutely, yeah. and, and, and I think that the background noise levels are also, uh, you know. An interesting debate in themselves, really, as to um, as to how people experience uh, noise in aircraft. So that, that that's the reason why the government rely on a uh, on a prescribed model and set um, um, values, which um, Mr. Beach did touch on um, the low L, so L, and all that good stuff, which um, which you're going to set set out yesterday. Yes, indeed, yeah. yeah. Thompson. Thank you. Just as a general point, as a resident living five kilometres due east from the control tower, that's pretty much all right. Um, the, the night flights um, on the Detling route can be very intrusive, um, and the change in the flight path of two years ago has been a, a, a huge benefit to us. Uh, but from uh, an informal point of view, the idea of building 10,000 houses between the five kilometre and the one, one and a quarter kilometre that Mr. Peachy referred to just does not make sense to me. I mean, the difference in the noise according to the prevailing wind blowing the ground noise and changing the flight paths is, is massive. Mr. Peach, do you want to add something else? Perhaps if, if I may just add a little bit to what's just been said. Um, measurement, uh, uh, quite rightly said, is, is a specialised uh, thing. And I should just add that the, the people who did the measurements that I quoted at those two sites had previously done measurements for Stansted Airport um, for the Noise and Track Keeping Working Group, which I used to be a member. And uh, they that it is a specialised thing. So my, my question is, why hasn't it been done? We're so close to the airport. There's people with skills, and it's, um, it's, it's uh, um, a very straightforward exercise. Uh, it is specialised work, and in the 
but nonetheless it's very easy to do. And you need to separate that, because that's trying to represent what people hear, from what Ms. Um, Andrew was saying, which is the ANCOM model into which you put in the certified noise measurements of all the various different types of aircraft. You then put in the numbers flying, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and out the other end comes these contours which you're looking at. But that is, that is one tool in the thing you've got. It's not all the tools you should be using because what that does, it gives you an average. <clears throat> and I think somebody the other day said, came in here and said, uh, if somebody fires a shotgun, he can hear it. But if, then if you average it over 16 hours, it disappears. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if I'm, I've picked that up correctly, but I think... So, but his, his point is, and then, <clears throat> um, again, I can, I can give your uh, officer a little paper to show why averaging over 16 hours doesn't give you the whole picture. It, it gives you some information. And the reason is back to this three decibel thing, which says that if an aircraft is three decibels quieter, you won't know the difference. If you double the number of aircraft that are three decibels quieter, it gives you the same area contour spread over 16 hours. So each aircraft is three decibels quieter. You won't know the difference. You won't hear the difference because you, that's the uh, three decibels is the minimum perceptible difference. But double the number of aircraft, you'll certainly notice. So you have to treat some of these things with real caution. And so relying on a 16-hour contour is not full story. Plus, it's only in the day. What happens at night? Now, the, fortunately now CAA produced the night contours. They didn't used to. They now do the, the eight-hour night contours. So at least we can get that as well. Then that's another piece of information to say what is it that we need to look out for for sleep, sleep disturbance. Just, just to clarify, both the annual ERCD reports that we publish that are available on our website and uh, again the council referred to and our planning application both cover night noise contours and the N above contours which Mr Peach referred to which are those overflight contours they're all in there for you to see probably covered it all in great detail um, I've got no other points to cover on this of the council now okay so it's probably just worth saying we did have a list of things um, sort of action points from week two I wonder if it's worth just exchanging those through the program officer we, we typed it up last night and we've added a few things to there'll be some things come out of today and like last week or the week before we'll just sort of bat that back and forth until we get a list of things that we think were agreed on that have come out of this week um, and also we'll agree a list of documents that for people to to comment on and we'll try and get that done I said Monday earlier but I suppose it might be Monday Tuesday it depends on everybody's availability doesn't it but early next week if there's a slippage in that then we'll, we can amend the time scale for comment we'll make sure that everybody has sufficient time to comment on that okay um, I think that has that covered everything is there anything else that uh... I don't think so no um, 
we we will we will work to those those timetables to get things ready as, as soon as possible then. yes i'm at my desk well we're probably going to have to stop tonight now it's probably going to be tomorrow afternoon before i get back home so it's probably monday before we get any of this to you now that's why there's going to be a bit of a slippage really from what we maybe thought this morning we thought we might drive back tonight but i suspect probably not um so um yeah, so Monday, Tuesday next week, hopefully we can get these things finalised and on the um, examination website for people to see. Um, obviously, then we'll take it, we'll just sort of have to play it by ear in terms of what comes back, how we consult, that sort of thing, but we'll agree those parameters early next week. And then um, it's not until that point that we can finalise our letter back to you in terms of our thoughts from this stage of the examination so it's difficult to sort of set a time scale for that yet but it's looking like that's probably going to go into September I would imagine by the time all this has sort of happened and um, other commitments as I say we've got we can start working on that but um, it'll need finalising okay so thanks for everybody's help and uh, no doubt I'll see you again at some point could that I just ask a question mm. just <clears throat> I'm not a planning person I've never done this before um as you can probably tell. Uh, um, what happens to... Um, I've got the, the amount of documentation that's come through in the last few days, weeks, does all this get condensed? So does the local plan get updated to a final version where you have a body of evidence that, that you can refer back to in future times? You know, because... For me, there's just stuff all over the place at the moment. Well, you've got the examination website that's getting updated, and there's different elements to that now. So there's documents now that are coming in as part of the examination. There's the original examination website. The local plan, well, you've got main modifications that you'll have seen to the local plan, so they get worked up throughout this stage and then um, <coughs> the second stage of hearings, and then eventually they get advertised in the final stage. Sometimes councils will produce a plan with those sort of in so that people can see more clearly where the changes are. So as a, um, a working document, kind of, it varies from council to council. But, uh, but we, we've started to do that for, right. um, for internal helpful. use. And, yeah, so, I mean, once we've finalised all the mods from, uh, from these sessions, then, not finalised, um, you know what I mean, yeah. Uh, then, then, yes, we'll do that for internal use. We'll, we'll publish it as well because it's useful for everyone, I think. Sometimes it's easier for people to read them on a page and see what's crossed out and what's added in than just reading a table of modifications, so, so that is quite helpful. So the council obviously committed to doing that, um, and it is sort of a real iterative process that will happen right the way through. So, for example, the trajectory um, will get discussed, although it's been amended now, it will get discussed again at stage two when we look at the site allocations, the, the smaller allocations and things. Um, and it may change again, who knows. So things do emerge all the time, and there will be evidence. The evidence base does get updated as well, particularly on a large strategic plan like this. Is We have had quite an unprecedented number of documents the last few weeks, but it's not unusual for evidence to come in throughout the process. And it varies on from plan to plan. I don't know that. Does that answer your question or not? It does, yeah. I just want <laughs> project management background, and we just right. work on versions of documents, and I'm just wondering... Is there a final version of this, but obviously not? Yeah, but well, eventually there'll be a final version of the plan, um, um, which will be based on main modifications that we will recommend, and the council will then take to their full council and adopt as a plan that's eventually published. Yeah, thank you.
Okay, we'll have a safe journey, everyone, and thanks for all your help. Thank you. Thank you. Mostly it was buried under thousands of fathoms of salty sea, unknown and unsuspected. When all its branches were added together, the network extended to 75,000 kilometers. A very little of this had been known for some time. People laying ocean floor cables in the 19th century had realized that there was some kind of mountainous intrusion in the mid-Atlantic from the way the cables ran. But the continuous nature and overall scale of the chain was a stunning surprise. Moreover, it contained physical anomalies that couldn't be explained. Down the middle of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge was a canyon, a rift, up to 20 kilometers wide for its entire 19,000 kilometer length. This seemed to suggest that the Earth was splitting apart at the seams, like a nut bursting out of its shell. It was an absurd and unnerving notion, but the evidence couldn't be denied. Then in 1960, core samples showed that the ocean floor was quite young at the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, but grew progressively older as you moved away from it to east or west. Harry Hess considered the matter and realized that this could mean only one thing. New ocean crust was being formed on either side of the central rift, then being pushed away from it as more new crust came along behind. The Atlantic floor was effectively two large conveyor belts, one carrying crust towards North America, the other carrying crust towards Europe. The process became known as seafloor spreading. When the crust reached the end of its journey at the boundary with the continents, it plunged back into the earth in a process known as subduction. That explained where all the sediment went. It was being returned to the bowels of the earth. It also explained why ocean floors everywhere were so comparatively youthful. None had ever been found to be older than about 175 million years, which was a puzzle because continental rocks were often billions of years old. Now Hess could see why. Ocean rocks lasted only as long as it took them to travel to shore. It was a beautiful theory that explained a great deal. Hess elaborated his arguments in an important paper which was almost universally ignored. Sometimes the world just isn't ready for a good idea. Meanwhile, two researchers working independently were making some startling findings by drawing on a curious fact of Earth history that had been discovered several decades earlier. In 1906, a French physicist named Bernard Brun had found that the planet's magnetic field reverses itself from time to time, and that the record of these reversals is permanently fixed in certain rocks at the time of their birth. Specifically, tiny grains of iron ore within the rocks point to wherever the magnetic poles happen to be at the time of their formation, then stay pointing in that direction as the rocks cool and harden. In effect, they remember where the magnetic poles were at the time of their creation. For years, this was little more than a curiosity. But in the 1950s, Patrick Blackett of the University of London and S.K. Runcorn of the University of Newcastle studied the ancient magnetic patterns frozen in British rocks 
and were startled, to say the very least, to find them indicating that at some time in the distant past, Britain had spun on its axis and traveled some distance to the north, as if it had somehow come loose from its moorings. Moreover, they also discovered that if you placed a map of Europe's magnetic patterns alongside an American one from the same period, they fit together as neatly as two halves of a torn letter. It was uncanny. Their findings were ignored too. It finally fell to two men from Cambridge University, a geophysicist named Drummond Matthews and a graduate student of his named Fred Vine to draw all the strands together. In 1963, using magnetic studies of the Atlantic Ocean floor, they demonstrated conclusively that the sea floors were spreading in precisely the manner Hess had suggested and that the continents were in motion too. An unlucky Canadian geologist named Lawrence Morley came up with the same conclusion at the same time but couldn't find anyone to publish his paper. In what has become a famous snub, the editor of the Journal of Geophysical Research told him, such speculations make interesting talk at cocktail parties, but it is not the sort of thing that ought to be published under serious scientific aegis. One geologist later described it as probably the most significant paper in the earth sciences ever to be denied publication. At all events, mobile crust was an idea whose time had finally come. A symposium of many of the most important figures in the field was convened in London under the auspices of the Royal Society in 1964, and suddenly it seemed everyone was a convert. The Earth, the meeting agreed, was a mosaic of interconnected segments whose various stately jostlings accounted for much of the planet's surface behavior. The name Continental Drift was fairly swiftly discarded when it was realized that the whole crust was in motion and not just the continents, but it took a while to settle on a name for the individual segments. At first, people called them crustal blocks, or sometimes paving stones. Not until late 1968, with the publication of an article by three American seismologists in the Journal of Geophysical Research, did the segments receive the name by which they have since been known, plates. The same article called the new science plate tectonics. Old ideas die hard and not everyone rushed to embrace the exciting new theory. Well into the 1970s, one of the most popular and influential geological textbooks, The Earth by the Venerable Harold Jeffries, strenuously insisted that plate tectonics was a physical impossibility, just as it had in the first edition way back in 1924. It was equally dismissive of convection and seafloor spreading. And in Basin and Range, published in 1980, John McPhee noted that even then, one American geologist in eight still didn't believe in plate tectonics. Today, we know that the Earth's surface is made up of eight to 12 big plates, depending on how you define big, and 20 or so smaller ones, and that they all move in different directions and at different speeds. Some plates are large and comparatively inactive, others small but energetic. They bear only an incidental relationship to the land masses that sit upon them. The North American plate, for instance, is much larger than the continent with which it is associated, 
It roughly traces the outline of the continent's western coast, which is why that area is so seismically active, because of the bump and crush of the plate boundary, but ignores the eastern seaboard altogether, and instead extends halfway across the Atlantic to the mid-ocean ridge. Iceland is split down the middle, which makes it tectonically half American and half European. New Zealand, meanwhile, is part of the immense Indian Ocean Plate, even though it is nowhere near the Indian Ocean, and so it goes for most plates. The connections between modern land masses and those of the past were found to be infinitely more complex than anyone had imagined. Kazakhstan, it turns out, was once attached to Norway and New England. One corner of Staten Island, but only a corner, is European. So is part of Newfoundland. Pick up a pebble from a Massachusetts beach, and its nearest kin will now be in Africa. The Scottish Highlands and much of Scandinavia are substantially American. Some of the Shackleton Range of Antarctica, it is thought, may once have belonged to the Appalachians of the eastern U.S. Rocks, in short, get around. The constant turmoil keeps the plates from fusing into a single immobile plate. Assuming things continue much as at present, the Atlantic Ocean will expand until eventually it is much bigger than the Pacific. Much of California will float off and become a kind of Madagascar of the Pacific. Africa will push northward into Europe, squeezing the Mediterranean out of existence and thrusting up a chain of mountains of Himalayan majesty running from Paris to Calcutta. Australia will colonize the islands to its north and connect by some Isthmian umbilicus to Asia. These are future outcomes, but not future events. The events are happening now. As we sit here, continents are adrift like leaves on a palm. Thanks to global positioning systems, we can see that Europe and North America are parting at about the speed a fingernail grows, roughly two meters in a human lifetime. If you were prepared to wait long enough, you could ride from Los Angeles all the way up to San Francisco. It is only the brevity of lifetimes that keeps us from appreciating the changes. Look at a globe, and what you are seeing really is a snapshot of the continents as they have been for just one-tenth of one percent of the Earth's history. Earth is alone among the rocky planets in having tectonics, and why this should be is a bit of a mystery. It is not simply a matter of size or density, Venus is nearly a twin of Earth in these respects, and yet has no technical activity. But it may be that we have just the right materials and just the right measures to keep the Earth bubbling away. It is thought, though it is really nothing more than a thought, that tectonics is an important part of the planet's organic well-being. As the physicist and writer James Treffel has put it, it would be hard to believe that the continuous movement of tectonic plates has no effect on the development of life on Earth. He suggests that the challenges induced by tectonics, changes in climate, for instance, were an important spur to the development of intelligence. Others believe the drifting of the continents may have produced at least some of the Earth's various extinction events. In November 2002, Tony Dixon of Cambridge University produced a report published in the journal Science, strongly suggesting that there may well be a relationship between the history of rocks and the history of life. What Dixon established was that the chemical composition of the world's oceans has altered abruptly and dramatically 
at times throughout the past half billion years. And that these changes often correlate with important events in biological history. The huge outburst of tiny organisms that created the chalk cliffs of England's south coast. The sudden fashion for shells among marine organisms during the Cambrian period and so on. No one can say what causes the ocean's chemistry to change so dramatically from time to time. But the opening and shutting of ocean ridges would be an obvious possible culprit. At all events, plate tectonics explain not only the surface dynamics of the Earth, how an ancient Hipparion got from France to Florida, for example, but also many of its internal actions. Earthquakes, the formation of island chains, the carbon cycle, the locations of mountains, the coming of ice ages, the origins of life itself. There was hardly a matter that wasn't directly influenced by this remarkable new theory. Geologists, as McPhee has noted, found themselves in the giddying position where the whole Earth suddenly made sense. But only up to a point. The distribution of continents in former times is much less neatly resolved than most people outside geophysics think. Although textbooks give confident-looking representations of ancient land masses with names like Laurasia, Gondwana, Rodinia, and Pangaea, these are sometimes based on conclusions that don't altogether hold up. As George Gaylord Simpson observes in Fossils and the History of Life, species of plants and animals from the ancient world have a habit of appearing inconveniently where they shouldn't and failing to be where they ought. The outline of Gondwana, a once mighty continent connecting Australia, Africa, Antarctica, and South America, was based in large part on the distributions of a genus of ancient tongue fern called Glossopteris, which was found in all the right places. However, much later, Glossopteris was also discovered in parts of the world that had no known connection to Gondwana. This troubling discrepancy was, and continues to be, mostly ignored. Similarly, a Triassic reptile called Lystrosaurus has been found from Antarctica all the way to Asia, supporting the idea of a former connection between those continents, but it has never turned up in South America or Australia, which are believed to have been part of the same continent at the same time. There are also many surface features that tectonics can't explain. Take Denver. It is, as everyone knows, a mile high, but that rise is comparatively recent. When dinosaurs roamed the Earth, Denver was part of an ocean bottom, many thousands of meters lower. Yet the rocks on which Denver sits are not fractured or deformed in the way they would be if Denver had been pushed up by colliding plates, and anyway, Denver was too far from the plate edges to be susceptible to their actions. It would be as if you pushed against the edge of a rug hoping to raise a rock at the opposite end. Mysteriously, and over millions of years, it appears that Denver has been rising like baking bread. So, too, has much of southern Africa. A portion of it, 1,600 kilometers across, has risen about one and a half kilometers in a hundred million years without any known associated tectonic activity. Australia, meanwhile, has been tilting and sinking over the past hundred million years, as it has drifted north towards Asia, its leading edge has sunk by nearly 200 meters. It appears that Indonesia is very slowly drowning and dragging Australia down with it. 
Nothing in the theory of tectonics can explain any of this. Alfred Wegener never lived to see his ideas vindicated. On an expedition to Greenland in 1930, he set out alone on his 50th birthday to check out a supply drop. He never returned. He was found a few days later frozen to death on the ice. He was buried on the spot and lies there yet, but about a meter closer to North America than on the day he died. Einstein also failed to live long enough to see that he had backed the wrong horse. In fact, he died at Princeton, New Jersey in 1955, before Charles Hapgood's rubbishing of continental drift theories was even published. The other principal player in the emergence of tectonics theory, Harry Hess, was also at Princeton at the time and would spend the rest of his career there. One of his students was a bright young fellow named Walter Alvarez, who would eventually change the world of science in quite a different way. As for geology itself, its cataclysms had only just begun, and it was young Alvarez who helped to start the process. Part 4. Dangerous Planet The history of any one part of the Earth, like the life of a soldier, consists of long periods of boredom and short periods of terror. British geologist Derek B. Ager. Chapter 13. Bang! People knew for a long time that there was something odd about the Earth beneath Manson, Iowa. In 1912, a man drilling a well for the town water supply reported bringing up a lot of strangely deformed rock. Crystalline classed breccia with a melt matrix and overturned ejecta flap, as it was later described in an official report. The water was odd, too. It was almost as soft as rainwater. Naturally occurring soft water had never been found in Iowa before. Though Manson's strange rocks and silken waters were matters of curiosity, 41 years would pass before a team from the University of Iowa got around to making a trip to the community, then, as now, a town of about 2,000 people in the northwest part of the state. In 1953, after sinking a series of experimental bores, university geologists agreed that the site was indeed anomalous and attributed the deformed rocks to some ancient, unspecified volcanic action. This was in keeping with the wisdom of the day, but it was also about as wrong as a geological conclusion can get. The trauma to Manson's geology had come not from within the Earth, but from at least 100 million miles beyond. Sometime in the very ancient past, when Manson stood on the edge of a shallow sea, a rock about a mile and a half across, weighing 10 billion tons and traveling at perhaps 200 times the speed of sound, ripped through the atmosphere and punched into the earth with a violence and suddenness that we can scarcely imagine. Where Manson now stands became an instant hole, three miles deep and more than 20 miles across. The limestone that elsewhere gives Iowa its hard, mineralized water was obliterated and replaced by the shocked basement rocks that so puzzled the water driller in 1912. The Manson impact was the biggest thing that has ever occurred on the mainland United States, of any type, ever. 
The crater it left behind was so colossal that if you stood on one edge, you would only just be able to see the other side on a good day. It would make the Grand Canyon look quaint and trifling. Unfortunately for lovers of spectacle, 2.5 million years of passing ice sheets filled the Manson Crater right to the top with rich glacial till, then graded it smooth so that today the landscape at Manson and for miles around is as flat as a tabletop, which is, of course, why no one has ever heard of the Manson Crater. At the library in Manson, they are delighted to show you a collection of newspaper articles and a box of core samples from a 1991 to 92 drilling program. Indeed, they positively bustle to produce them.